With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. And I have this written in some of my notes. What does it matter to gain the whole world? And have to give up your gender. Let's uh, continue with vehicles. We're going to take a look at your driver's license. Your Washington license has, uh, if you look at it, several numbered fields on it, right? So number one is your last name. You go down to field 15, and there is either an F or an M. Well, soon there might be a third option. You could get an X as your gender on your driver's license. Is this a step forward? I spoke to Dean Spade, who's an associate law professor at Seattle University and author of the book Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics, and the Limits of Law. Dean Spade told me how gender got onto driver's licenses to begin with. I think the best way to think about this is that every state has a different driver's license, right? Each state makes their own license. And then also we have all these other documents. We have a Social Security card and Social Security records. Your Social Security card doesn't have gender on it, but it's in the records that are like in the government's computers. And we all, you know, have the option to maybe get a passport depending on uh, your status, right? So we have all these different – we have birth certificates. We have so many different pieces of ID and they each have their own history, right? And and so, for example, with driver's licenses, I think one of the – first states to issue driver's license was in the 1930s. And the goal of it wasn't to test whether or not you're a good driver. It was to raise revenue to do the roads, right? And it was just a license, like a fishing license, right? And the last state to get a license was 1957, South Dakota. So each of these has kind of done their own rules, had different uses for it. When did they get a photo on them? When did they get a magnetic strip? And so it's kind of hard to say kind of one clear history of when the driver's license in the United States got any category because they're all kind of this mishmash of different rules and policies. And to this day, they all have different rules about how you change your gender on your license. So the Washington State driver's license, it's not a fixed thing. The way we use these documents has evolved. 
Yeah. So each of these documents, the birth certificate was, you know, invented so that they would know how many people were being born, how many people were dying, right? The driver's license is invented to create revenue for, you know, fixing the roads. The social security program is invented because we've just had the depression and they want to somehow take care of old people and people with disabilities, right? And then now all those things are used for things like immigration enforcement and law enforcement. So one question we could ask is how has there been this creep of these identity documents and then also that they have more and more information about us on them or tied to them and are used primarily for kind of this tracking and surveillance? I think that's one question we should be asking while we have the conversation about the gender marker. Well, one reason we're so used to pulling out our driver's license to identify ourselves, many of us have done this summer, is that we go to airports. And especially post 9-11, identification has become important and accepted to us. It's part of our failing of security. Yes, there's been a drastic change in identity documents since the sort of quote-unquote war on terror began. A couple, Many of these things have been very relevant to trans people and, of course, very relevant to immigrants because the orientation of the whole thing has been about how to hunt down immigrants more. And so a couple things have happened that people are probably aware of. The passage of the Real ID Act, which aimed to make all driver's licenses in the states meet a federal standard and uh, you wouldn't be able to use it for federal purposes like going through TSA until it was until that state complied with the Fed. So basically trying to make driver's license more like each other according to a federal standard. That included trying to make it so that immigrants wouldn't be able to get driver's licenses, which many states allowed at the time. And then also another like really wild thing that happened after um, the war on terror began is different pots of data about us that different identity document issuing agencies keep, like Social Security and DMVs, started getting compared to each other. So for example, in the mid-2000s, people started getting letters that said, our state has compared our DMV ID records with the Social Security records, and you have a mismatch, so we're taking away your license, right? But for trans people, that was a really big deal because the Social Security records rule about how to change your gender marker was very different from many of the states you might live in. So you couldn't actually make those match. So one of the dilemmas that, you know, this topic that we're talking about today, Washington's new policy brings up, is how Gender is incredibly inconsistently defined in all these different ID regimes because, of course, you could define gender a lot of ways. It's a social construction, right? It's a fiction in our lives. And so uh, one of the pieces that's been really, really hard for trans people is that it's really hard to get ID that says who we say we are. And depending on, like, where you were born, what that will depend on whether or not you can change your birth certificate, which you can't change where you were born, what state you live in, what its DMV rules are, all of these things then mismatching with possibly federal documents. And that's been a lot worse since 9-11. Well, wouldn't that be a trouble spot in Washington state moving from the MF choice to an X choice on the driver's license? Isn't that just another minefield of having, if, if you change your designation, now you've got a designation out of step with other IDs? I think it's going to be interesting to find out because not every form of ID allows an X, um, as you know, right? And so, because, you know, some jurisdictions are bringing this in and some aren't. Um, and so I think that's going to be an interesting question, but it's already a problem for trans people. It's, I mean, that's just, um, I think it's, you know, 68% of trans people don't have any ID that matches who we say we are. And only 11% of trans people have all of our ID ducks in a row. Like it's very, very hard. And so many trans people are very poor and there's a lot of fees associated with having ID and changing your ID. I think it's about 35% of trans people, the reason they haven't been able to change their name or their ID is because of the fees and costs. And so the dilemmas are, are many. A lot of people want an X 
because they feel like it's a better match for them. I think that there's a lot of questions about how this will roll out. You know, will it help people get by in the interim? Will it help pe- some people? Will it be an obstacle? I think, I think the the point of the advocacy around it is to try to loosen the rigidity of this gender binary on our IDs. Um, but I do think the question of how trans people struggle with mismatching IDs is a significant one. Is there any downside to having an X on your Washington driver's license to identify your gender? Is, could that be a sort of a, of, a, of a mark in some, a mark of suspicion or, or a mystery to, to, to whoever's looking at that ID? Yeah. I mean, I think that discrimination against trans people is immensely, immensely widespread. That is why we have a double poverty rate, a double unemployment rate, a huge rate of homelessness, a huge rate of police violence. That's, that's, discrimination is significant. Kind of, for a lot of people, it doesn't matter what you have on your ID. People are going to be like, we don't want someone like you working here. We don't like the way you look. A lot of people, you know, if, you, if people can tell you're trans, they're harassing you. Um, sometimes people get outed by their ID. So that could be a problem with an X or if you have an M, but people think you look like an F or you have an F and people think you look like an M. So, I think it's hard to say. I mean, the 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 levels of discrimination trans people are facing can't be fixed by an ID change. On the other hand, making it easier for people to have IDs that say something that they believe comports with their identity may make people, and that's for the individual to figure out, like, what do I think will make me safest in most situations? That's what I recommend to my clients as an attorney is, you know, what what do you think would get you through this interaction with cops or the voting booth or all the places you have to show ID best. That's the guess you have to make. Um, and that's, it's unfortunate people are put in that position that discrimination is so, so common. You know, Dean, some people are advocating that we all use uh, they, them type pronouns instead of staying stuck in the he and she. And I wonder how you feel about someone who like, I, I, my uh, birth certificate has an M on it and my whole life, my driver's license had an M and it's fine with me. I identify that way, I guess, always have. Well, now if there's an option, I don't know. I don't feel a need to officially choose a gender on my driver's license. Is How would you feel about me choosing an X, even though so many people identify me and I've identified myself one way or the other as an M? Yeah, I'm excited about your journey. You should do whatever you want, <laughs> of course. I think the thing I'm actually interested in is um, how could we begin to imagine not having gender markers on ID. The fantasy of a gender marker on ID, especially in the war on terror era, is that somehow this makes us safer or this tells us who people really are. But as you and I both know, gender changes throughout people's lives. Sometimes you think you know someone's gender by looking at them, but you got it wrong. Like sure. gender is not actually a stable category. And even the fact that every state and every ID issuing agency has its own rules about how you change it shows us how unstable this category is. So I'm I'd be interested in us talking about really moving away from having gender on ID. In the meantime, what advocates have been doing since that is, has not been kind of a viable push in these, you know, with these government agencies yet, we've pushed instead to try to make it less difficult to change your gender marker. So there's been years and years of advocacy to get rid of rules that make it super hard, that make you get a court order, that make you prove you have a certain kind of genitals. Like those kinds of rules are very, very difficult obstacles for people. And then that gets in the way of getting a job or doing what you need to do with your ID. So that's one step is loosening how hard or easy it is to change gender on your ID. Another step can include adding this X option. That's another way to loosen this or to make it less rigidly enforcing a binary that where the government is telling you, this is who you are, this is who you will always be. 
But I think we should all think about, like, why are these markers on ID? What is the fantasy that they suggest that we have these very, very stable gender identities and that it's the right way to tell who someone is? But is there no need for the government to 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 use that gender information for medical purposes or affirmative action tracking? Is there no downside to what you're saying? I think that we could do the kind of work that you're thinking about. Like, we could we could say, if we want the government to make sure that, like, women are becoming doctors or that, like... You know, uh, people with testes are not having a higher likelihood of this kind of brain cancer. There are ways to gather that information that aren't tied to individual identity. So this is like if you look at the history of the debate about HIV names reporting, this is a debate that happened for years and years about whether or not the government would collect data about who tested positive for HIV and tie their name to that data or whether it would just generally collect aggregate data about how many people were getting HIV in a given state or in a given jurisdiction. So we can collect health data, right? We can we can collect um, data about who's in different professions without having it be like on that person's ID and tracking them and using it as a way to verify their identity, which is what gets people in trouble now where you show up looking for a job and your ID says F and they're like, you look at like an M to us. You, we don't want you to work here. What's wrong with you? You're a fraud or we don't want you to get on this plane or we don't want, you know, all those moments. I think the other piece of it is that gender on ID is acting as a proxy, right? We're pretending that we know a bunch of things about you because you've got this marker. So we're like, that proxy could be we think we we know that you have a certain genitalia or certain internal organs or and it may not be true right or certain kinds of fertility like we know that there actually isn't one thing that all people with f's on their id have or can do or are like so it's not a good proxy for health information it's a it's it's a fiction right and so if we really wanted to track what's happening for people with uteruses or what's happening with people who uh, have a feminine presentation or trying to go to medical school or whatever it is, we would get more specific. The gender on ID is this very messy, inaccurate approach that I think is based in kind of the cultural fiction that everybody is one or the other and that they are that for life and that all people who have that category are all the same in their physicality and in their sociality. And it's just not true. Are there parallels here with wanting to know people's gender and to identify them by their race? Yeah, I think that's a really good parallel. We can think about the history of race on different pieces of ID and the ways in which is varied just like gender and when when it went on and when it went off. But we can see that race, like gender, is a social construction. The If we had an ID and we thought it was a way we could tell who you are, that would be absurd because people who have the, might be in the same racial category look really different from each other. And racial categories are considered different in other countries. And so if you moved here, you might write a different thing down for your race. And people are misidentified around race all the time. Like, we can understand it. And they've as, changed in this country. Right. It's changed again and again. Yeah. Or we can even look at the history in the United States, which is somewhat similar, where different states defined whiteness and blackness differently for purposes of segregating public transportation at different points. And there was all these complicated cases about it, right? Law cases and controversies. Because your race might change as you cross a state line, right? And so we could say the same thing about gender in the sense that the DMV of one state says they would never change your gender to an F and the DMV of the other state says they would change your gender to an F. And so I think both um, indicate for us these kind of efforts at social control through government surveillance and tracking that we could question and oppose. And I just really specifically want to say this conversation about the X on the idea in Washington should be a conversation where we think about social justice, not just justice for trans people to get through this ID regime, but also that we should be opposing the constant expansion of surveillance and deeper and deeper data gathering and identification 
of us by the government, especially since the war on terror began, aimed at law enforcement and immigration enforcement. So we should be, you know, resisting being heavily identified by the government in this way. And if you look at the history of the pieces of ID in the U.S., including birth registration and including Social Security and driver's licenses, people didn't want it. They were like, you're going to assign a number to us? Are you kidding me? In the 1930s, people were saying to the government, why are you giving us all a unique identifier? And there was huge pushback. And there was huge pushback against registering births from the early 1900s onward. People said, you're, you're going to track whether or not we have babies? No way. And they had A lot to, of that was done at home. Yes. And they had to create... Um, they had to create like laws criminalizing doctors if they, and midwives if they didn't register them because people wouldn't register them. So I think we should kind of wonder, why are we no longer opposed to surveillance? Why are we no longer pushing back against these regimes? And especially now as we're seeing evidence more and more that companies like Amazon are in it with ICE and that there's all of these really entangled relationships between the police and Facebook, we should really be asking kind of uh, how do we oppose identification regimes like these from the government and from corporations? Come here, Susie. You remember me? Your daddy's friend, Henry? I... I... No, don't! Attorney General William Barr says the FBI will investigate the apparent suicide of wealthy financier Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein was found dead in a Manhattan jail cell early Saturday. Barr said today Epstein's death will not end any quest for justice for his alleged victims. Let me assure you that this case will continue on against anyone who was complicit with Epstein. Any co-conspirators should not rest easy. The victims deserve justice, and they will get it. I want to begin our coverage with NPR's Ryan Lucas, who covers the Justice Department. Hi, Ryan. Good morning. So um, give us the latest. What exactly do we know about Epstein's death and how this may have happened while he was in custody here? Well, there still aren't a lot of answers. There are a lot of questions that have uh, continued to kind of simmer on this whole thing. But uh, his death has raised so many questions in large part because in July, Epstein had put on been put on suicide watch after an apparent suicide attempt. Now, a source tells me that he was taken off of suicide watch in late July. He was on it for only a couple of days. Uh, instead, he was placed in a special housing unit uh, where he had a cellmate and prison staff was to check in on him uh, every 30 minutes. Now, uh, I'm told that in the hours leading up to Epstein's death, the cellmate was not there and Epstein was not being checked on. Uh, the cellmate had been transferred out. No one had replaced him, uh, as should have happened under protocol, uh, from what I'm told. Uh, so questions as to how all of that went down. Now, New York City's chief medical examiner said yesterday that her office uh, had done an autopsy on Epstein. Um, the office said it hadn't reached a determination as to the cause of death uh, pending further information. But this is just still mind-boggling. That I mean, he, there were so many reasons why he should have been watched closely here, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the, the suicide, uh, apparent suicide attempt in July being uh, chief among them. But then on Friday, uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of court documents related to Epstein uh, that came out by uh, the order of a federal court. These documents uh, were related to a lawsuit brought by one of the women who says that she was uh, sexually abused and trafficked by Epstein. Some of these records were sworn depositions. There are new allegations in there about how Epstein allegedly uh, brought underage girls into this sex trafficking ring. Um, they also contain new allegations against other prominent men who allegedly had sex with girls through Epstein. Uh, those include uh, former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, uh, and former U.S. Senator George Mitchell, they, for their part, they have both denied uh, those allegations. 
All right, so you have the Attorney General William Barr saying he was appalled um, by this, instructing the Justice Department's Inspector General to, to look into Epstein's death. The FBI is investigating. What, what, what are the questions they're trying to answer? Well, first and foremost, uh, I'm told that this, this is a priority. Um, the FBI Deputy Director David Bowditch has been providing updates to the Deputy Attorney General, so the number two at the Justice Department uh, every three hours or so throughout the day. Um, the big question, of course, though, is you know how – Epstein managed to be in his cell alone and not checked in on by guards every half hour as he was supposed to be. Um, protocol appears not to have been followed in this case, uh, in this instance, and investigators are, of course, going to want to find out why. And then another big question is what options remain here for the alleged victims? I mean, what, who are still looking for justice? What, what can they and their lawyers do now? Well, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York said that his investigation continues into the sex trafficking, alleged sex trafficking conspiracy. He urged anyone to come forward with more information. Uh, and then, of course, there's a possibility to pursue, pursue civil suits for the, uh, for the victims. All right. NPR's justice correspondent, Ryan Lucas. Ryan, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Jack was nimble. Jack was quick. Got a question for Jack. Ask him. 40 acres and a mule, Jack. Where is it? Why'd you try to fool the black black? When it comes to understanding financial inequality in this country, economists often point to the absence of African-American generational wealth as one principal factor. It's resources passed from parent to child. As John Yang reports, for many African-Americans, one source of the problem goes back decades. Over the past century, African-Americans have lost millions of acres of farms they owned across the South. It's a trend propelled not just by economic forces, but by white racism and local white political and economic power. It's not just a legacy of the Jim Crow South, either. Most of the losses have occurred since the 1950s. That history and its lasting effects are the subjects of the cover story of the September issue of The Atlantic magazine. It's written by Van Newkirk, who's a staff writer at the magazine. Van, thanks for joining us tonight. What is important about this story? Why did you want to tell this story? And what is important, you think, that people should know from it? Well, right now, the country is in the middle of a lot of debates over the racial wealth gap, over the status and and economic prosperity or lack thereof of African-Americans here, and also about reparations, perhaps. And I wanted to, with this piece, uh, recenter the conversation on uh, the South, on black folks in the South who often get left out of this conversation on uh, one of the places where the deficit has been the most extreme, and that's in farming and in the ownership of land. You call this, or the headline is, the great land robbery. What happened? Uh, Give us an idea of what happened. So what happened was during pretty much after the middle of the 20th century, uh, federally funded farm programs, they were uh, put out there to give small and middle-sized farmers' loans to support farms, uh, to keep them going through bad economic times, they systematically disenfranchised and also discriminated against black farmers. So they didn't get the loan amounts. They were denied loans that they were entitled to. And often uh, these local USDA programs were used as uh, bully pulpits or, or forces to actually push 
black farmers off their land. And some of this was actually accelerated or exacerbated as a result of the civil rights movement, that this was a reaction to the civil rights movement. Right. So uh, most of the USDA funding was actually leveraged through locally elected boards. And guess who could not vote in the South? So what would happen is these boards were dominated by the, the segregationists. And if you were a black farmer who needed money to, to grow your crops next year, one of the ways they, they could ensure you never joined the NAACP or never went out to vote or march against uh, segregation was to hold that money in their hand and say, you're not getting this money unless you tow the company line. And so what they did to black farmers who didn't do that, who did go out and join the NAACP and these organizations, they took their money from them. And you also talk about the lasting effects of this, not only the, the loss of sort of family wealth, but also the political effects. Right. Uh, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina. These were states that were, if they weren't majority black going into the Great Depression and beyond, were close to being about half black. And what prompted the Great Migration, quote unquote, that saw millions of black people leave the South was the fact that a lot of them had had their land stolen. Maybe, and I think this is probably what happens if they hold on to that land, if they're able to make money in the South and, and, have, and vote in the South and have some type of stake in the future of their kids living in the South, perhaps those three states at least stay majority black. What happens then to the, the Electoral College if we have three majority black states? What happens to the Senate? Yeah, those are big questions. You told this story through, in part through uh, a woman in her 60s now. She's the third generation of her family to be working the same farmland. The family was able to hold on to this land. Her name is uh, Walena Scott White. Uh, and let's take a listen to a little bit of what she told you. It's dear to me that my children know what my ancestors went through for us to be where we are and who we are. Because I'm a firm believer that if we don't know our history, then we repeat the mistakes over and over again. Knowing your history, she says that f families were denied their history by having their farmland taken away. Talk about that and the, the other effects of this, the impact it has on families. Well, I talked to dozens of farm families for this story. And the reason why Walena's particular story and character got to me is because she's a historian. This is in her bone. She wants to build a museum in the Delta to honor not just her father and grandfather, but all the other farmers who came before her. I think she embodies the idea that what we're talking about here is not just money, not just the access to land, but the ability to put down cultural roots, to have a place to call your own. That's history, right? That's a thing that I do not believe we, we quite understand it's lost when people are forced to move, when they are denied the ability to own the land under their feet. They are denied a bit of their history. These people who live in the Delta now, black folks who live in the Delta now, they are in this place that was built with their hands and work that they are part of, but not allowed to actually hold any part of. You also talk in your survey how a lot of this land, through various transactions, is now held by pension funds, uh, by venture capitalists, by hedge funds. You seem to hint that you think these transactions were somehow unethical? I believe that it's possible through totally ethical means at this point, so many decades away from the original theft, uh, to receive the land legitimately. You know, if you buy it from somebody who owned it and they don't have the, the lineage of the, the land, they don't know where it came from, that's a legal purchase. 
What I try to make the point of in the piece is that it probably doesn't matter whether an individual company got its land portfolio in a place where predominantly black folks lived and worked and should own the land. It doesn't really matter if they got it individual plots of land, ethically or legally. What matters is that at some point, the land was taken unethically and was taken away from these black folks illegally. What is our legal, ethical, moral responsibility as a people to rectify that? Well, I mean, let me ask that. You talked about reparations earlier. How should we be thinking about rectifying this? I do not believe the current reparations debate, in its well-meaning and well-intended effort to try and quantify every single thing that was done to black people since slavery. That's an amazing effort. And I believe over the last five to 10 years, there have been people doing work that folks have not been able to approach in 150 years on quantifying in terms of a dollar amount. I think that approach, though, has lost the focus on land and land ownership and collective land ownership in some ways and the, the, the sentimental and cultural and generational uh, meaning of, of a attachment to a place and having uh, mobility be by choice instead of by being forced out. I think that's a dimension that should be added back to this conversation is the original promise of reparations was a land grant. It was 40 acres and a mule. It, people didn't love it because it was had certain monetary value. They loved it because it gave them a place to call home forever, gave them something to give to their children, not just money, but a, a sense of belonging, a place they can put their name on. And that's, I, I do believe the current reparations debate is missing a little bit of that. Van Newkirk, it's cover story, The Great Land Robbery in uh, the September issue of The Atlantic. Thanks so much. Thank you. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. This is St. Louis Public Radio. The city of Kinlock was once home to 10,000 people. The 2010 census counted about 300. As a child growing up in neighboring Ferguson, filmmaker Jane Galuli began to notice the divide between the all-black Kinlock and her community. That divide was symbolized by a physical barrier that is at the heart of her documentary, Where the Pavement Ends. It's part of the Arch City Defenders racial justice film series. Now living in Boston, Galuli spoke with St. Louis Public Radio's Andrea Henderson about the film and the community. Filmmaker Jane Galuli grew up in Ferguson during the Jim Crow era. Galuli is white. As a child, she had a lot of freedom in her hometown and was completely unaware that Ferguson was a segregated white community that sat next door to Missouri's first all-black city, Kinlock. I wasn't aware that Ferguson was a closed community until then. I get a little bit older and can, could venture further from where I grew up. And that's when I first um, came across, like, all kids in in the town um, knew about this closed road on Suburban Avenue. And then I was certainly aware that that this was different, you know. And um, But at the same time, this was never anything that was discussed. The Suburban Avenue that Galuli talks about is the now non-existent site of the roadblock. I remember the first time I saw it, I remember it being a a metal, like, corrugated guardrail that was cemented 
into the ground, you know, like you'd see running along the side of a highway or something like that, or at the end of a at, at the end of a dead end road. The 79-minute documentary connects two historical moments that both the neighboring city residents have witnessed, the Kenlock-Ferguson roadblock protest, as well as the demonstrations that ensued after the killing of Michael Brown Jr. What the roadblock represented to me was the, was the sort of institutional racism that um, existed, you know, 50 years ago. And that was the, the prehistory of you know, how and why a teenage boy could be killed uh, on a street on the other side of town 50 years later. To Galuli, examining segregation and other racial inequalities that derived from the roadblock was just as important as focusing on the killing of Michael Brown Jr. This is such a common tactic that's used and it's still used all over the country. And so having a you know, two segregated towns divided by some sort of roadblock or barrier is something, and, you know, divided communities existed all over the United States, and they still do. And so I also felt like this was going to be something that anybody who saw this film is going to relate to, and they do. The 61-year-old filmmaker says the barricade created resentment and anger between residents of Kenlock and Ferguson. In the film, one resident of Kenlock expressed her memories on how the black aid made her and other blacks feel in the 1960s. One thing that I remember is that we were angry. And, and today people are angry. There are a lot of things to be angry about. And a lot of people don't get it. It was clearly there as a, a racist monument almost you know, to, like, what was happening between the communities. I'm certainly not trying to say that the barricade between the two towns directly created the events that that, um, happened with Mike Brown, but I do think that there's an association between the decades of unresolved racism in this country and and how it will continue to of just like feed more violence and anger. Where the pavement ends argues that although the suburban avenue barrier is gone, its legacy as a symbol of racism persists in memory and in real life. I'm Andrea Henderson, St. Louis Public Radio. My stars and gods, President Ronald Reagan, my hero. Is this heaven? Oh, not just heaven, ruckus. White heaven. You see, there are many different types of people, Ruckus. So God created many separate, but, well, for the most part, equal heavens. You don't say. White heaven is for decent, good, God-fearing Christians who just happen to, well, hate everyone and everything relating to black people. Turns out that God really doesn't have that much of a problem with racism. He doesn't even remember slavery, except in February. Personally, I hate black people, Ruckus. That's why I did everything I could to make their lives miserable. Crack? Me. AIDS? Me. Reaganomics? Come on, I'm in the name. A recently unearthed audio recording of Ronald Reagan from 1971 has raised questions about the former president's views on race. Lisa Desjardins takes a closer look now at the comments made nearly 50 years ago and Reagan's complicated legacy. In the early 1970s, Ronald Reagan was governor of California and already a national name in Republican politics. 
On the morning of October 26, 1971, Reagan called up President Nixon at the White House. Hello, President. Hope I didn't get you out of bed. Their 12-minute chat was captured on President Nixon's White House tapes and was released in full by the National Archives just last month. It includes Governor Reagan using a racist slur to describe a group of African diplomats at the United Nations. Last night, I tell you, to watch that thing on television, as I, as I did, yeah. to see those, those monkeys from those African countries. <laughs> Damn them, they're still uncomfortable wearing shoes. <laughs> Reagan was reacting to this U.N. session the day before, where the U.S. lost major votes over the rise of China and whether communist China should be seated as the official Chinese delegation. Beijing won with a coalition of nations that included many developing nations. The result led some, including the Tanzanian delegation, to burst into celebration. For historians, the audio of Reagan's reaction to that moment is a new data point. H.W. Brands is a Reagan biographer and professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Reagan's 1971 words to Nixon surprised him. I read his diaries, I read his letters. I hadn't heard him say anything like this. So I was frankly curious and a bit puzzled. Reagan wrote two memoirs, and in both of them he made a point of the fact that his father, Jack Reagan, had taught him and Reagan's brother to not engage in discrimination because Jack the father was Irish, an Irish Catholic, and he himself had suffered discrimination. So he made a point to his sons that this is not the way you should behave. When Reagan launched his 1966 bid to become California governor, his 30-minute ad showed two sides of thinking. One was get tough on crime, at one point comparing violent areas to jungles. The only thing that's gone up more than spending is crime. Our city streets are jungle paths after dark. The other was soaring rhetoric about equality. Those few who choose to walk with prejudice will walk alone. Never again should any parent know the heartbreak of explaining to a child that he's to be denied some of the good our country has to offer because in some way he's different. Brands has his own theory about the new audio, that Reagan's slur was an attempt to sway President Nixon, who is now known to have made racist comments privately. At least part of it, Reagan is using, I think, this language operationally to try to move Nixon in the direction he wants Nixon to go. But other historians disagree deeply about this new audio. So my reaction was a little bit of surprise, but not shock. Historian and Harvard associate professor Leah wright Rigur is thinking of the long debate over Reagan's view of black America. Under Reagan, African Americans saw poverty and incarceration rise. Historians have debated why. Now, we actually have a broader context about Ronald Reagan, one wherein he is using racial slurs and that he is, you know, he is talking about black people, and uh, in this case Africans, in a pejorative and negative and regressive sense. So now what we have to do is reconcile that prejudice with Ronald Reagan's actual policies and programs and the things that he did on the ground. Reagan's record offers much to examine. He stressed states' rights during his 1980 presidential campaign, a phrase associated with small government philosophy, but also with segregationists. I'm trying to prevent discrimination with this idea, as I say, of eliminating quotas. He fought affirmative action, decried those with welfare benefits as gaming the system, and increased prison rates for minorities. All, he argued, as part of slimmer, safer government that encouraged people to stand on their own feet. 
Reagan did extend the Voting Rights Act for 25 years, though he initially tried to soften some of the law's protections. And while he was reluctant to establish a national holiday to celebrate Martin Luther King, Reagan did ultimately sign legislation to do so. Let us not only recall Dr. King, but rededicate ourselves to the commandments he believed in and sought to live every day. For some, like H.W. Brands, Reagan disdained discrimination, but he focused on other policies and problems. Reagan never pretended to be a hero of civil rights. He really did believe that laws that were made at the state level were generally better than laws that were made at the national level. Reagan was a small government conservative. But in Leah wright Rigur's assessment, it's more about sizing up his policies against his messaging. It's morning again in America. Like Reagan's iconic 1984 Morning in America campaign ad, which shows many different faces of Americans. Under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Over the course of his career, Reagan and his strategists and his advisors figure out that one of the most politically powerful and insulating things that they can do is actually use the language and symbolism of inclusivity and tolerance, even as they are having different kind of conversations with audiences like uh, white Southerners around states' rights that have traditionally held racialized and discriminatory uh, meaning. Both historians note that other modern presidents also have complicated histories on this subject. Consider President Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson grew up in Texas, which is a state of the Confederacy. And Lyndon Johnson had to deal with all sorts of rampant racists in Texas. And when he was speaking to them, he spoke a language that they could understand, a language that he wouldn't speak in public, a language that he wouldn't speak in other contexts. But he was also one who was very effective at getting people to go along with him. We have somebody like Lyndon Johnson on tape saying all kinds of awful things about, uh, about race, saying racist things, saying discriminatory things, saying sexist things. We also know that during his presidency, he's instrumental in really forcing Congress to pass the most comprehensive civil rights bill the nation had ever seen. And so all of those things can be true and coexist at the same time. The renewed debate over President Reagan and race comes as he has become a touchstone for leaders in both parties. Last month, Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi referred to some of Reagan's pro-immigrant words to rebuke President Trump. He is denigrating every, all the newcomers who come to our country in complete opposition to the beautiful words of Ronald Reagan in the last speech that he made to the, Congre- to the country as president of the United States. The doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. Reagan, the great communicator, knew the power of words. Mr. Gorbachev. Now there is even more debate over how he used them. We will always be For the prepared. PBS NewsHour, I'm Lisa Desjardins. So we may be always free. Carry me back to old Virginia. And now a story about two churches both in small towns in Virginia, both named Friendship Baptist, and both with two very different congregations. Both Friendship Baptist churches have found themselves caught up in a controversy tied to President Trump, and they've been feeling the impact of the president's racist rhetoric in different ways. Here's NPR's Sarah McCammon, who visited both congregations. A welcome sign on the way into town reads, Historic Appomattox, where our nation reunited. 
But here, where the Civil War ended more than 150 years ago, there are still reminders of division, like another sign posted in front of Friendship Baptist Church on the edge of town. I want to speak on the subject, America, love it or leave it. Pastor Ernie Lucas says he posted that on his church sign several weeks ago. It was around the same time that President Trump tweeted an attack on four Democratic members of Congress, all women of color, telling them to, quote, go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came. Lucas is white, 85 years old. From the pulpit, he defends his sign and expresses anger about the response it's received online and in news reports. Anybody in here from Yankee land? No one raises their hand. The letters that came from north, north of the Mason-Dixon line, I am sorry to say, those folks don't know how to talk. You're talking about some vile, wretched language. Lucas tells his small, all-white congregation he's gotten threats of violence, even death, since putting up the sign. He also got letters of support from around the country. My country Lucas says he has no ill intent against anyone, but he is worried about people coming into the country illegally and committing crimes. During the service, he mentioned the mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, but afterward he said he doesn't believe news reports that the white shooter was targeting Latinos. I think this idea of racism has been blown out of proportion. I really do. We got some sorry people, black and white, but I don't pay any attention to it. One of Pastor Lucas's church members is Diane Cook. Her car is parked near the America Love It or Leave It sign. She agrees with the message and her pastor, and she says Trump was right to criticize the four Democratic Congresswomen, who include the first two Muslim women elected to Congress. Where the parents come from, are they Americans? Just because she was born in America does not make her American. Doesn't it, doesn't it legally, though, under the Constitution? Under the Constitution, yes. But I don't know how to uh, express that to uh, make you understand that I wish she, I wish they, well, I don't want any Muslims in America. Two hours away in Hopewell, Virginia, is another Friendship Baptist Church. We are not that church that says America, love it or leave it. Pastor Norwood Carson says his church has gotten angry calls from people confused about their name. His response? You are calling the Friendship Baptist Church of Hopewell, the church that loves God, loves others, and serves the community. Carson is 59, and he, like most of his congregation, is African-American. He says the meaning of the love it or leave it sign is clear. Obviously, it's a racist statement. But to find out it came from a church just really took me for a loop. This is not who we are. Elaine Thomas is one longtime church member at Hopewell's Friendship Baptist Church. She was a teenager growing up outside of Richmond, Virginia, at the height of the civil rights movement. And us as a Christian community right now, we have to work that much harder to bring people back together, to unite people, to let us know that we're much better than this. Thomas believes President Trump is responsible for stoking renewed racism in America. This may have been how we were at some point, I'm going to say back in the 50s and 60s. But this is not who we are right now. We've come too far to turn around and go back, and we're not going back. Thomas's pastor, Norwood Carson, says he'd like to talk to Pastor Ernie Lucas at the other Friendship Baptist and try to understand more about what motivated that sign. Lucas says he's open to the conversation. 
Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Appomattox. This is my rifle. I can't say with confidence that by the time you hear this, the killings in El Paso and Dayton will not have been followed by yet another mass shooting. It's become an almost expected occurrence, which only seems to draw heightened attention when a new incident escalates the horrible reality. So the three murders at California's Gilroy Garlic Festival, weren't they just a few days before the two-state carnage? quickly faded from public attention until the body count ratcheted way up someplace else. 31 and counting combined deaths in Texas and Ohio. We are caught up in a bullet-ridden repeat cycle. Lingering screams in the air, bodies on the ground, tears and candlelight vigils, funerals and prayers, and a disturbing growing list of places where ordinary Americans take their last breaths. President Trump told us the day after the shootings, we're a nation overcome with shock and horror. But are we? Or are we a community numbed by the regularity of shock and horror and the all-too-familiar bloody details? And one week after, we are still helpless to do more than echo each other's heartfelt pleas. What are we going to do? How will we make it stop? Until the next time it happens. Greek philosopher Plato said, We can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark, but the real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. We've chosen not to step into the light to face the vicious roots of these tragedies, chosen not to name the thing what it is, domestic terrorism. Instead, we're continuing to engage in a dangerous game of semantics, characterizing these shooters, the young, disaffected white men, as troubled youth. We attributed their premeditated actions to a spontaneous outburst of mental illness. But the Dayton shooter kept a list of people to rape and to kill. There has to be some mental instability to gun down random strangers, but as one Latino pointed out to the PBS NewsHour, the El Paso massacre wasn't a random shooting. She said he wanted to shoot brown people. Just as 21-year-old Dylan Roof wanted to kill black people when he murdered nine Charleston churchgoers in a prayer meeting. Back then, there was fierce denial about Roof's racial agenda. Could we have saved lives if we saw him as part of a not-so-underground white nationalist movement? The facts are the FBI identified 100 domestic terrorists since October, and FBI officials worry that copycats will drive up that number. Sorry, Mr. President, the reason for the mass shootings is not primarily about video games and or mental health. Though if you believe that, why has your administration cut significant funding to those programs? I'm not going to argue about whether or not your language has contributed to the environment which incites violence. It has. The El Paso shooter referenced the impact of your presidential words in an Internet posting before the killings. And after a wearying several weeks of enduring your racist tweets, I'm done debating this point. I'm also not wasting my time wondering if this moment after these deaths will propel us to move legislatively to make changes in gun laws. Sadly, I doubt it. I'm Callie Crossley, WGBH, Boston's local NPR. 
World Nigga Law. Israel has barred the entry of two U.S. Democratic Party congresswomen who've been critical of the country's policies towards the Palestinians. Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar have been expected to begin a tour of the Palestinian territories soon. But President Trump had urged Israel to prevent the visit, saying the congresswomen hated Israel and all Jewish people. Israeli officials say that they've been denied entry on account of their support for the international movement that urges a boycott of Israel. Palestinians have described the decision as an assault on their right to engage with the rest of the world. Julian Marshall got a reaction from Hanan Ashrawi, who would have been hosting the two congresswomen in the Palestinian territories. I think this is absolutely preposterous and unacceptable. I mean, they are denying entry to representatives of another country. I mean, their ally, the U.S. These are congresswomen who are coming to Palestine, not to Israel. They are coming to reach out to the Palestinian people to see how things are on the ground and the reality of the occupation. And now Israel gives itself the right to bar them from coming to Palestine, to ban them from entering, and at the same time to impose a blackout on Palestinian realities in order for them not to find out the truth. This is not acceptable, and I believe that this is an affront to the American people and to the representatives themselves. But unfortunately, Donald Trump himself, the president, was inciting against them, and he was telling the Israelis not to uh, allow them in. But Israel would argue that it has a 2017 law that bars foreigners from entering the country who support a boycott of Israel. And uh, they would argue that that is what these two congresswomen have been doing. Well, the thing is, Israel cannot tolerate dissent or differences of opinion. There are many people who, who adopt this. There are many people who think that Israel should be held accountable. This is something that is universally acceptable. So Israel cannot legislate in order to violate international law and human rights. And Israel now thinks that not only is it above the law and it can do whatever it wants with the occupation, it wants to enjoy full impunity and it wants to punish those who want to hold Israel accountable and act in accordance with their conscience. Is this another reason for the Palestinians not to engage with the Trump administration? (laughs) I don't think we need another reason. I think that the Trump administration has taken illegal unilateral measures on the issues of Jerusalem, on the issues of refugees, on the issues of funding the Palestinians, on the issue of punishing the most vulnerable segments of our population. And of course, by refusing the two-state solution, the 67 borders, by refusing to acknowledge the fact of the occupation itself, So they have effectively violated every aspect of international law pertaining to the Palestinian question. So in a sense, I mean, there's nothing left to do other than incite against their own nationals, against the representatives of the American people. An American president is telling a foreign country not to admit members of his own Congress. (laughs) I mean, this lacks any sense of logic or political responsibility or respect for his own people even. Certainly we said the moment that they decide to treat us as equals and to respect international law, then of course we are willing to talk to them. But since they are violating the law and violating our rights, there is no reason to engage. Senior Palestinian official Hanan Ashwari there. Julian Marshall also spoke to Yaakov Katz, editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, who's currently in the United States. He asked him if he thinks Israel had done the right thing as regards the U.S. congresswomen. The short answer is no, in my personal opinion. I think that Israel 
by barring them, even though there's legislation in place that allows Israel to prevent people who are supportive of the BDS movement from entering the country. I don't think that it should have been applied in this case. These are elected officials from the United States. And, and what we have to remember, as bad as they might be, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, and, and even anti-Semitic, they come from the Democratic Party. And Israel for decades, since its inception pretty much, has always strived to ensure that it receives bipartisan support from both sides of the aisle in the U.S. Congress, Republican and Democrat. And what's happening now is Israel is becoming a political football. Israel is now barring them from entering the country, is aligning itself with the Republican Party. And whether Trump wins or doesn't win come 2020, the pendulum will one day swing back and it will hit Israel really, really hard. And this, this, this will not do well for the long-term support that Israel has enjoyed until now here in the United States. So you would argue that um, Israel has done the wrong thing because it risks alienating the U.S. Democratic Party. I completely think so. I think, you know, there will be people who will tell you that the Democratic Party is lost and anyhow it's moving away from Israel. And that might be the case and it might be something that Israel can no longer do or can no longer repair or change. But I don't think that we're yet at that no, the point of no return. I think that by doing this, Israel is uh, definitely going to be expediting that process. And that will not be good for the long-term U.S.-Israel alliance to ensure that that continues to thrive. That's number one. Number two is on a different level, it makes it seem like Israel has something to hide. And as an Israeli journalist and someone who's lived in Israel for, for 26 years now, I don't think we have anything to hide. On the contrary, I think anyone from our greatest detractors to our biggest supporters, Israel is a country that should let anyone come in who wants to come in. They should see Israel. They should see what the country really is like, how diverse it is, how interesting it is, how colorful it is, how there's a wide range of opinions on all matters from the Palestinian conflict. Why would the country want to hide that from people? And, and then on a third level, I'll just say that by not letting these congresswomen into Israel, you've basically now catapulted them into a level of prominence that they just do not deserve. And uh, what was the worst that would have happened? They would have come, they would have made some comments, they would have tweeted some tweets, posted something on Facebook, been critical of Israel, the so-called occupation, etc. But now the damage will be so much greater. And, and, that, and Israel just shot itself in the foot, sadly. Yaakov Katzer, the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, the first thing we're going to do to, I think, stop racism is stop focusing on racism. Stop focusing on racism. To Sweden now, and the verdict in the court case of the U.S. rapper ASAP Rocky. He was charged over a street brawl in Stockholm, and the case received attention worldwide, including from President Trump. Our reporter there is Maddie Savage. Well, both ASAP Rocky and two others who were on trial have been found guilty of assault. They were involved in a fight in Stockholm at the end of June, and the judgment ruled that they were not, as they said, acting in self-defense, and that they assaulted the victim by hitting and kicking him. And they were given a what's called a conditional sentence here in Sweden, a suspended sentence. That means they do not have to return to Sweden to spend any more time uh, behind bars. They already spent a month in custody ahead of the trial. Uh, so not the not guilty verdict they will have been hoping for, but I think for a lot of ASAP Rocky's fans, a sigh of relief that he will remain free in the outside world and won't be required to spend any more time in detention. And as I mentioned, this became you know, something of a cause celebre. It had international attention. Why was President Trump so interested? 
President Trump got involved in the case after he heard about it from his wife and from uh, Kanye West, the other U.S. rapper who has connections to, to Donald Trump and had been calling for ASAP Rocky's release from detention. That's because they felt it was unfair that he was being kept in custody uh, for so long. Uh, they wanted him to be given bail. But that's actually something that doesn't exist in Sweden. You can't pay money to be released from custody here. Uh, Donald Trump even phoned the Swedish prime minister to see if he would intervene, but he said there's an independent justice system here, no matter who calls or tweets about it. So that attracted a huge amount of global attention, but far fewer journalists here today uh, to uh, witness the verdict. Uh, but I think a lot of people around the world uh, very interested still uh, to find out what ASAP Rocky's fate would be. We now know uh, a guilty verdict, but a suspended sentence. That was Muddy Savage in Stockholm. Now keep in mind that I'm an artist. Early on in the movie Black Panther, there is a confrontation in a fictional British museum. A visitor is arguing with a curator over African artifacts. These items aren't for sale. How do you think your ancestors got these? You think they paid a fair price? Or did they take it like they took everything else? A similar discussion is happening in museums around the world over the African art in their collections. Germany has plans to return art and artifacts taken from Africa during the colonial period. And last month, France announced a 20 million euro loan to the West African country of Benin for a new museum to house returned objects. Emma Jacobs reports. In 2006, France's Quai Museum lent a set of wooden statues and carved furniture to Benin. People were queuing for three or four hours. Marie-Cécile Zinsou established the Fondation Zinsou, the Benin Museum that hosted the objects, originally seized from the region by a French military expedition in 1892. People who came to the exhibition left lots of messages in the visitor's book. Thank you for sharing this piece of Beninese history. But why do these objects have to go back in France exactly? People were really saying, like, do you think we could have them back for real soon? According to the most commonly cited figures from a UNESCO forum, 90 to 95 percent of sub-Saharan cultural artifacts are now housed outside Africa. Many, like the works from Benin, were taken during the colonial period and ended up in museums across Europe and North America. Some of them were brought by missionaries, others were brought by civil servants. At the Africa Museum in Belgium, director Guido Grisils says 85 percent of the museum's collection comes from the country's former colony in Central Africa the Belgian Congo. Also some were resulting from military expeditions and sometimes even from plundering. For decades, Congolese leaders have asked for these objects to be returned. Most of their requests and those by African countries to other museums have been refused, with some exceptions, particularly for human remains. But recent events in Europe have raised the possibility of returns at a much larger scale. Last year, French President Emmanuel Macron commissioned a study on how much African art French museums are holding and to make recommendations about what to do with it. Senegalese economist Felwin Sarr was one of the authors. Sarr says the problem is you can't lend people an object that you basically stole from them. The study recommended the return of a wide range of objects taken during the colonial period by force or where there's simply no documentation of consent. The report got mixed reviews in France, where SAR estimates there are at least 90,000 African items in museums, the vast majority in just one, the state-owned Quai Branly in Paris. 
Its director, Stéphane Martin, said in an interview with radio station Europe One that restitution shouldn't be a dirty word, but that the report was too drastic. Museums, he said, should not be the hostages of the unhappy history of colonialism. The wrangling over where art comes from and where it belongs isn't new. The most famous example is Greece's long-standing dispute with the British Museum over what the British call the Elgin Marbles, sculptures from the Parthenon that have been at the London Museum for almost 200 years. Alexander Herman of the Institute of Art and Law in the UK says that in 2002, a group of directors from major international museums issued a general declaration on the topic of restitution. Claiming we shouldn't just be kowtowing to these claimant countries and giving everything back and things need to be shared with a world audience and we're the best places where this can happen. That sentiment still lingers, he says. The Elgin marbles are still in the British Museum. But I think on other fronts, there is more of an openness. The director of the Africa Museum in Belgium, Guido Grisils, acknowledges that attitudes are changing. We are fully aware that it's not normal that such a large part of the African cultural heritage is in Europe or in Western museums. Grisils says he's in discussion with his counterpart in the Congo to return works. In France, some press coverage has suggested returns could leave vacant shelves in French museums. Cécile Fromont, a French historian of Central African art, says that's not going to happen. We are talking about hundreds of thousands of objects. One way of thinking about it, she says, is that more African art can go on display. As somebody who wants to champion the display and study of the expressive arts of the African continent, if we can get more objects on view in more settings, in more museums, in more places around the world, that sounds like a great solution. For now, those wooden objects from Benin are back at the Quai Branly. It will take an act of the French Parliament to release them from the museum's collections and another law to allow for wider permanent returns. For NPR News, I'm Emma Jacobs. This is dedicated to whom it may concern. The first day of school is Wednesday for students here in Wynn, Arkansas. And students at the high school likely will have more to talk about than new teachers and classes, namely that four students were held at gunpoint here in town last week. The four teenagers were going door to door selling discount cards for the high school football program. The Wynn school system says two of them had jerseys on. All four of the students were African-American. The incident took place at this home on Morningside Drive at 10 in the morning on August 7th. The Wynn police chief in a media statement says when officers arrived, four juveniles were found lying on the ground with a female standing with a gun. The officer had the children stand up and explain they were selling the cards for school. Bill Winkler's lived in the neighborhood for four decades and says seeing the students isn't uncommon. Usually it's right before football season, late summer, early fall. 
and the kids are out selling these uh, discount cards. Monday, when police arrested 46-year-old Jerry Kelly on four counts of aggravated assault, false imprisonment, and endangering the welfare of a minor. Kelly doesn't have a mugshot because Cross County Sheriff David West told me she had a, quote, medical issue while she was being booked. Kelly is the wife of Cross County Jail Administrator Joe Kelly, one of West's employees. During that time that, that uh, she was at the jail, uh, bondsman arrived and, and her husband bonded her out and they they went back home. West maintains despite no mugshot, which is standard procedure for anyone booked into jail, Jerry Kelly did not get preferential treatment. Her husband Joe remains on the job. I'm professional. My department's professional. Um, there was no special treatment. She went through the steps just like any other person would. Nobody came to the door at the home Tuesday, as the Wynn superintendent told me door-to-door sales by students could be suspended, and other neighbors are left uneasy at the details of the encounter. They're just kids. You worry about your neighborhood. You, know, you, you wonder, well, who is this person? Court staff say Ms. Kelly is scheduled to make her first appearance in front of a judge Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Reporting in Wynn, Arkansas tonight, I'm Kendall Downing, WMC. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, August 17, 2019. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, counter-racist suggestions, questions to share. Uh, the number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again, six zero five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Woo. Lots to share. We will get to the callers. If you tuned in early, they are doing uh, the 25-year anniversary for the film uh, Shawshank Redemption. Morgan Freeman, before all those allegations, Me Too got him as well. Uh, But Morgan Freeman is a Tom Robbins all-star cast. 1994, Mr. Fuller uh, has talked about that film a lot uh, over the years. I went back and was able to find one of the Segments where he was giving out some of the different lessons uh, about that film. Lots of lessons. They'll probably be playing it quite a bit uh, this month. Uh, the one thing uh, I'll add, my one brief comment. Morgan Freeman's character, his name, Red. He doesn't even get a real name. He just gets a non-white color. We'll call him Red. He's the only person in the film who is supposed to be in jail everybody else they have a joke oh I'm innocent or actually Andy Dufresne the white man the main character he is innocent he's not supposed to be there for real for real that's the tragedy of the uh, film and triumph but Morgan Freeman read he's supposed to be there and he says it explicitly when asked oh no I'm guilty I'm a killer I'm a convict 
That's what niggers do. I am where I am supposed to be. But lots of lessons, as Mr. Fuller said, Shawshank Redemption. Wow, lots to share before uh, we get to the callers. Uh, first and foremost, all of the details for the cows. 10-year anniversary yoga retreat, counter-racist yoga retreat in Florida for December have been posted. You can visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com The material, I just posted it on social media as well. On the blog post, there are pictures of the tentative location in Davenport, Florida. On social media, on Twitter, I think specifically, I posted the same link, uh, but I also have a uh, photo, one of the images that we used. We had to do pictures to promote our summer teaching. Uh, The image, you can see me doing a headstand on the rooftop in beautiful summer Seattle, the crystal blue sky in the background. I've been so spoiled to be able to do uh, lots of rooftop yoga uh, this summer, but the most important bit of information the details uh have been posted uh the dates again are december 28 which is a saturday to january 1 which is a wednesday again i picked those dates specifically because i figured people would still be doing uh some things with their uh, attempted family friends relatives whatever it is on the actual 25th uh, of december and maybe even the day uh afterwards uh, I picked the 28th, was thinking about the 27th, 28th, somewhere in there, just to give people a few days to do all of that. If you're going to be engaged uh, in that, I know some people that's uh, one of the limited times that they have uh, the time and energy to be with people that they uh, care about sometimes who don't live in the immediate vicinity. Uh, so to give people at least a few days, uh, if that's something that's going to be on the itinerary. Uh, but again, December 28th to January 1 for the retreat, that's five days Four nights, Davenport, Davenport, Florida, at the tentative location. Everyone will have a bed. Everyone will have a bed. Chef Nadir from Virginia will be flying down to prepare breakfast, lunch, dinner uh, for the time that we are there plant-based meals we were already talking about the menu since we are slowly getting better at planning uh, if you have ideas thoughts for the menu or meals to try out let us know i already put in my suggestion to see if we could try out uh kale coleslaw recipe i was talking with chef nadira and she said that she didn't really she wasn't a big fan of coleslaw and she said mostly because she's only had coleslaw uh, from Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, which I thought was uh, tragic uh, that that's her only uh, memory uh, of tasting coleslaw is what the colonel uh, serves up, which is, you know, not a representative sample of coleslaw in my view. Anyway, uh, but in addition to Chef Nadir coming in to prepare spectacular meals, uh, we'll have counter-racist workshops uh, and food workshops uh, where Chef Nadir will be able to go over some of the details of preparing vegetables, preparing healthier, nutritious veggie meals, entrees, where you don't have all that cheese, 
uh, and meats and poisons and chemicals uh, in your food where we can ask questions, uh, get more details, uh, and we will all get hands-on experience. Uh, I think Black African uh, suggested maybe if, if folks have a meal that they're comfortable with, that they could come in and prepare for the group while we're there. Uh, and I kept thinking about that. And I paired that with what I've been hearing from both people at the retreat and just people in general, uh, that they don't really have a quality relationship with vegetables. They don't really know a lot of, of details or they don't really have a lot of recipes uh, in terms of how to prepare vegetables in a tasty manner that doesn't involve like a lot of cheese and butter and deep frying them and, you know, something where they're not quite as healthy as they could be. And so I said, you know what, we can all get a little bit of kitchen time. Uh, we can go in, uh, we'll be helping out Chef Nadira uh, for like an hour or so, and we'll get direct contact, slicing the vegetables. This is what's happening. This is how the carrot hot, uh, carrot hot dogs came to be. Uh, I think that would be great, even for myself, uh, to be able to get direct hand-on experience. Again, you can take that opportunity to ask uh, questions. Uh, and I just think it's a big difference uh, when you start to be more attentive about what we're putting in our mouths, what we eat, reading those labels, uh, and really trying to eat to uh, eat to nourish. I believe that's Elijah Muhammad. Eat to nourish. Eat to replace white supremacy with justice. But we'll have workshops uh, on food and counter racism. I was remiss the first time around in not thinking that white, uh, workplace racism specifically would be such a dominant conversation piece among the participants. We will not make that error this time. We'll just have a workshop included uh, for workplace racism in addition to uh, the holidays, because I feel like that's such uh, a significant time of year. There's so much time and energy focused uh, on that time of year. And we've heard a number of different uh, reports from people either dealing with uh, family members, victims, and or the office parties, combination of it all, and trying to get through that as an attempted counter-racist. Uh, we'll have some workshops uh, on that, as well as other subject matters. Uh, should be Florida, get away from some of the uh, colder winter weather, hopefully for a sunny, no mud Florida. Again, December 28 to January 1. Information has been posted. Uh, the deposit 475 is due September 15. Let me know if you have questions, need additional details. Davenport is about 45 minutes from the Orlando airport. 45 minutes. Uh, if you have any other questions, comments, suggestions, menu suggestions, menu requests, untiljustice at gmail.com. Let me know. Other items uh, on the agenda. Uh, I guess, folks, a, a question, I'll put it that way. The first audio segment uh, that we played this week from Seattle, where they were talking about driver's licenses in the state of Washington and they were saying that they the gender category they're looking at adding an X so it'll be M male F female and then X uh, and they were uh, talking about how this is abuse having this gender binary as a as they call it uh, is abusive and it's not accurate uh, because it speaks as though uh, being a male is fixed being a male 
is fixed, constant. You're going to be a male. You're born as a male and you're going to be that for the rest of your life. You're born as a female and there's no changing it, uh, which was presented that that is not true uh, and that this is similar to race. I think on this here program, we do talk about those comparisons. My question uh, for people that are listening in, uh, what do people make of this? Because there's a lot of that dropping the gendered pronouns uh, in some circles. It is incorrect, unacceptable. You might be chastised for saying uh, the mailman supposed to be the postal carrier. You might be admonished for saying Congresswoman Omar might get in trouble for that. Supposed to be Congressperson, gender neutral program uh, pronouns. I believe that's what they that's what they call them. Uh, what do people make of that? Does that seem uh, logical uh, in terms of how you understand uh, what it means to be a male, what it means to be a female? What do people make of that? Uh, do they see a relationship, a connection to racism, white supremacy, or no? Does that not make uh, sense? Kind of what Mr. Fuller saying about contempt for gender. Does that not make sense? Uh, do people think, hey, that, that does seem logical. I do see how you could transition or not be so rigidly fixed to being a male or a female. What do people think of that? I would be curious. Next, or even before I move from that, the wording that was used in that report, administrative violence. Talking about having people mark their gender on the driver's license and these other pieces of uh, forms, government identification type forms, administrative violence. Interesting terms. Uh, next. Uh, when I heard this report, it reminded me of Seattle. Uh, I just spoke with a black female and she works at, or she did, no longer does. She's uh, since obtained substantially better employment, uh, but she was a former employee at Trader Joe's and she talked passionately uh, about how they had uh, white employees who lobbied aggressively and apparently to, uh, to her testimony, extremely successfully uh, at getting LGBT people hired at the Seattle Trader Joe's. And she said they would have team meetings and talk about that and say that, you know, this is in Seattle and we're supposed to be welcoming of LGBT people. And if we don't have them working here, then they won't feel welcome. We need more of them working here and they would hire more. Uh, and I said, wow, I even remember talking to her and thinking, how would you even know if somebody is designated? And, you know, that how would you know that if they're just here working at Trader Joe's, putting stock on the shelf or whatever they're doing, handing out samples, you know, mopping the floor. Uh, she says, there are lots of them. They were extremely successful. She said they did a much better job at hiring, uh, lobbying for LGBT people than uh, I or anyone else did in lobbying for black people. Just reminded me of her report. Next. Uh, let's see. They, in the final report with Jerry Kelly, or not with Jerry Kelly, excuse me, that was second to last, uh, the report about the uh, African art 
that has been stolen, looted uh, around the world by whites. Uh, and they said uh, this was the museum in France. And they said that making these repairs that shouldn't be, you know, dirty. That's interesting term usage. Mud, dirty, shouldn't be dirty. And that they also, while they respected the report and acknowledging, you know, there's may have been some wrongdoing, that they didn't want to be held hostage to the unhappy history of colonialism. Now, that is a metaphor. We do talk about that on this here program, the compensatory call-in. The French Museum, whites in France, didn't want to be held hostage. Who is the kidnapper? Who is the hostage taker in this metaphor? Is it the victims of white supremacy who are requesting that their property be returned? Are they now hostage takers because they are requesting that their property be returned? Are the hostage takers the whites, also suspected race soldiers, uh, who are reporting and suggesting, yeah, we did steal the Negro's items. Maybe we should give it back or at least give some of it back. Are they the hostage takers because they are suggesting that whites maybe do the correct thing? And then the other half of it was we don't want to be held hostage to the unhappy history of colonialism. Unhappy history. I'm not even I don't even know what that means. What a curious way. You mean the history of white terrorism? Is that what you mean? The unhappy history of colonialism. And they weave in Black Panther uh, for some, in my view, added tackiness. Uh, now to the last segment on Jerry Kelly, the white woman in Arkansas. So many times, uh, I guess, wait a minute, before I even get to that, they said they were talking not five or six pieces of African art. They weren't talking 50. They weren't talking 500. They weren't talking 1,000. They were talking like tens of thousands of stolen property. Tens of thousands of pieces of stolen property. I thought white people were ignorant about racism and black people. How are you ignorant about a group of people when you have stolen, uh, pillaged thousands, tens of thousands of their artifacts, sometimes their actual bodies and refuse to give it back? What do you mean you're ignorant about these people and the practice of white supremacy? Now back to Jerry Kelly in Arkansas, one of the few states I have not visited. Now they say, along with white people being ignorant about racism, they say that white people are afraid of black people. They come up with all of these curious and wonderful phrases. Negrophobia, isn't that one of them? Black people are just terrified. They break out in the hives. It is amazing. Anytime Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson comes around, oh my goodness, they are petrified. Isn't that what they say? Jerry Kelly did not run under a bed. She did not hide on her roof. Jerry Kelly saw four black boys, black male privilege. She saw four black boys who were engaged in a high school fundraiser, some of them with high school sports jersey paraphernalia on, as they say, where you at least could have maybe recognized the local school name. She saw them and her thought was, oh my goodness, I just got that bulletin from Hallmark about niggers pilfering gift cards. Where is my rifle? 
she went to confront one white woman, confronted and quote unquote arrested. That's why I say it every broadcast, race soldier, badge or no. George Zimmerman, Jerry Kelly. She arrested four black males. I think Mr. Fuller said that you get shot, you've been arrested. Now, does that seem like a white woman who is fearful? Had to get the police to come and get her to, you know, take her scope off of these four black boys out fundraising. And then they arrest her and don't follow the normal, normal, normal protocol, according to their own testimony. And it just happens that she is the wife of the county jail administrator. And then they'll have the audacity to come behind after all of that when we started with administrative violence and the French Museum said that they are held hostage to the unhappy history of colonialism. They'll come after all of that and say that Jerry uh, Jerry Kelly was exercising her white privilege. And this is an example of white fragility. No, that is the same white terrorism as you saw in El Paso, Texas. That is the same white terrorism that you saw in Dayton, Ohio. That is the same white terrorism that you saw in Charleston, South Carolina with Dylan Roof. We're four summers out from that. White women, white men, white children, all the same, use correct terms. That was what uh, Callie Crosley, uh, that was what she said in her report, Boston Public Radio. That is white terrorism and should be connected. That is not some whoops. That's not an accident. That's not black male privilege. That is white people. We see a black person. Of course, I have the audacity. I have the right. I have the courage to grab my firearm and go out and confront any of these black people. And that's exactly what Dr. Welsing talked about in my view when she said reconstruction of white supremacy. I played that clip last week where she said you can expect more of this. Lots more of this. Welcome to the new school year, right? School's about to start up. People getting their supplies. Bravo. Make sure that includes a conversation on racism, white supremacy. Lots of these type of incidents. It's not the first time that I've heard of young black children Males and females, boys and girls, uh, just going out, trying to go to school. Remember that case not that long ago? It was a young black boy. He got confused about the school. He had moved to a, na- a new neighborhood, and he just went to knock on the door to ask for directions. And they did the same thing. Got a firearm and came out blasting. Same thing. Not talking to your children about racism, white supremacy. You are in dereliction of your duties as an attempted counter-racist parent. There are more Jerry Kellys out there, and she's not even in greater confinement. She's at home. Now, uh, I've said it a few times, so everybody should be expecting on this one broadcast. I do request we not use metaphors. Uh, Racists, they will frequently, we got a bunch of them this year week, hostage of the unhappy history of colonialism. They will consistently, and I mean skillfully, use language like that to cause confusion uh, and to not be accurate, to not use the most correct words to describe what they're doing, terrorizing black people. This causes tremendous confusion among non-white people. They will also take two separate entities like what we heard in the very first report, race and gender, and say, oh yeah, that's the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Totally the same. They will do this on a consistent basis. When you take two entities that are not equivalent and insist that they are identical, that is master deception. No one does it better than racist man, racist woman, racist child. Victims of white supremacy, Gusty included, 
We have been subjected to centuries of confusion. We are still learning, myself included. Uh, at times, we don't have logic. We substitute a metaphor, comparison, analogy of some sort. Frequently, this just contributes to more confusion. If we can make an effort to be direct, explicit about what it is we want to say, that would be appreciated. Uh, I will prompt about that. Uh, sometimes we just need additional uh, time to think about the words we want to use to articulate our thoughts. That is always allowed. Uh, if you could make sure to use your mute button, that would be appreciated. Uh, just make sure that we do not have unnecessary uh, distractions that we have to compete with while we are trying to speak. Uh, if everyone could take uh, five minutes to share their thoughts, suggestions, questions, uh, that'll make sure everyone has an opportunity to speak at least once. Uh, if you have additional thoughts or questions, uh, you can share once everyone has spoken at least once. Grand. Again, let me know if you have uh, questions, details uh, about the yoga retreat until justice at gmail.com. Uh, and I guess last thing I'll get in before we get to the callers, we should be here on Monday. Uh, Jason Miller, a white male professor at the university or at North Carolina State University. Greetings, Mr. Scotty Reed. Uh, he should be with us on Monday, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific uh, Professor Miller, he wrote the report that came out a few weeks back uh, that dealt with uh, Dr. King uh, and his uh, alleged uh, affair, sexual indiscretion uh, with a uh, victim of white supremacy, Dorothy Cotton. Uh, she recently passed away. She was a North Carolina native uh, as well. Uh, he'll be on the program to talk about that uh, report uh, hopefully, uh, folks, uh, I guess you could you could go back and, and listen to some of the cows archives. Uh, make sure you are refreshed. We've talked about some of this information before uh, the Cointelpro attacks on Dr. King with John Patash, uh, Dr. Kelly, uh, Kenneth O'Reilly. Excuse me. Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly was on a couple of times. We talked about the same issue. Make sure you're refreshed. Uh, I'll post the report that uh, Professor Miller authored about Dorothy Cotton and Dr. King. Uh, but he'll be here on Monday. Always look forward to opportunities to question whites uh, about white supremacy, racism, sexually reckless black males as well. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. There was a reason former President Ronald Reagan did not, or what did they say? He was reluctant to acknowledge and support Dr. King having a national holiday sexually promiscuous Negroes running around and now they get a national holiday. I see Ronald Reagan. Uh, going to the phone lines, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have questions, comments, again, uh, for the contempt for gender, uh, the segment that we started with uh, about uh, driver's licenses in Washington state having male, female, and X uh, for the gender notification. Uh, what do people make of that? Do you think this is logical, the way that it has been presented, the fluidity in gender, as they say? Do people see a connection between white supremacy, racism, and the way that this is being articulated or no? I'd appreciate hearing thoughts on that if folks uh, have been contemplating. Uh, if you have other thoughts, questions, suggestions, uh, if you have a hand up, a uh, line should be open. Proceed. 
Hello, Gus. Uh, greetings be in Toronto. Greetings to you, callers and listeners. So, yes, um, thank you so much for, for the news postings that you had. It was quite interesting listening to, to them all. Um, so in terms of the so-called contempt for gender, um, where the, the black community have not even been allowed to embrace gender, um, uh, as according to Dr. Tommy Curry's uh, book, we're, we're a genre of, of, the, of, of that particular category, not, not an actual, we weren't able to embrace it. So um, it's quite interesting that now that whites are tired of their gender, they just want to add more pieces for the confusion. Um, and it's just quite interesting because in the field that I'm in, um, I'm often working with people um, who have decided to put aside their gender, calling themselves fluid, having to be referring to them as they and them uh, or uh, their name and not the gender. So if I'm writing reports, I'd have to put in either their name or they or them, um, or I'd have to put in their fluid. And it's, it's really frustrating because the, 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 the answer or the question that's in the back of my mind is, well, if I was assaulted by a so-called fluid person, you know, am I going to be, or, or who would be obviously either a female or a male, uh, when I call the police, am I going to say I was assaulted by a possible male, female, or fluid person? Like, it's, uh, again, it's the sign to confuse and to frustrate. And um, so, yes, uh, it's it's quite interesting how they, they have it. Um, so that's for that piece. The next piece uh, that I found that was really interesting is how they were so quick to compare um, uh, so-called administrative violence of having to identify as a gender of male or female to that of race. It just goes to confirm that they already know um, the administrative violence uh, by categorizing people according to so-called race when according to Dr. Neely Fuller Jr. or uh, Mr. Neely Fuller Jr. that you know there's only one race which is the white race. Everyone else is non-white. Um, Again, adding to further deception and uh, bringing about mistreatment. In fact, the categories were used for mistreatment. Um, the other part that was interesting um, that I'm going to be suggesting to all parents, if possible, please do not, in this day and age, um, have your children go door to door for fundraising of any kind. Um, if we're going to have white females and males coming out with guns to wrongfully detain, mistreat, assault, possibly kill your own children, do not have them going door to door because clearly these people are violent. Um, and uh, the whole premise is to protect children as much as possible. And if they're bringing out their guns to detain because children are just going door to door for fundraising, even with having the identification on, I mean, come on, if they could go and shoot a security guard, a black security guard who, who has his uniform on, um, and he's just apprehended a criminal and they will shoot him anyways without asking questions. Just imagine what they'll do to your to your own children. Remember Trayvon um, uh, and, and what happened to him with just, you know, walking from the, the, 
the store back to to his home on his way to his dad's place, um, getting stalked and 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 murdered as if he was being hunted down. He was pretty much being hunted down. Um, the other piece that I wanted to add um, was it was interesting with the Jeff the uh, Jeff Epstein death. It's not surprising. Um, He's been allegedly connected with Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, and many other uh, alleged pedophiles, uh, the Bushes. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not surprising that he surprisingly died in custody because he has a lot of connections and has had knows who else is involved in, in, in these pedophile rings. So, um, you know, uh, in terms of obtaining justice, (laughs) who knows, right? I mean, you can't obtain justice while white supremacy is still in in action. And then the the final part was um, the Ronald Reagan situation, uh, where they were trying to say in that newsreel that um, he was... um, he was being operational in his term, and it was interesting this term operational in using um, uh, racist language um, in order to get the ear of Nixon. At the end of the day, Ronald Reagan was a racist. End of story. <laughs> you know, they, they might try to say, oh, well, you know, he was just trying to adjust his language to get an ear. The other thing that was really interesting is how they tried to minimize his his position as well, claiming that he was a lowly candidate. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. A lowly candidate who has the ear of a president? Uh, I don't know. Like, there, there's a lie being told here as well. Um, so it was just, the, the whole thing was really interesting. Thank you so much, and I leave the line. Much obliged, B in Toronto. Lowly candidate, indeed. He was uh, governor of California. I don't know. Uh, I do not claim to be a political uh, guru, especially about the what they call electoral college. But, oh, buddy, you watch 2020 about, let's see, it's August. So give it about 15 months from now, November 2020. Watch when California comes in. Oh, my goodness. All those electoral votes like California is huge uh, in terms of that state and the politics of California. Uh, that's why they consistently will pay attention anytime. Gay rights. That was a big one uh, in California. They pay attention to all of that because it can have such a huge influence nationally uh, on politics. So absolutely great job. And be in Toronto, not even a victim of white supremacy stateside to point that out, to have a California governor mentioned as a lowly candidate who's on the phone swapping racist jokes with President Nixon. Hmm. Uh, I didn't want to throw in quickly. Seems like that this term gets mentioned at least once a compensatory call in. Brilliant illustration of a community is so-called Israel. And then being able to say, oh, no, these congresswomen, Congress people, if we're dropping the gender pronouns, uh, these congresspersons will not be allowed in. And that's that. We might change our mind about it. We might not. But until then, you will not be allowed. I think something similar happened uh, with a former six time uh, congresswoman, Cynthia McKinney, uh, where she attempted to go to Israel and they blocked her uh, boat or ship. I think this is after she was out of office. But that is a community where you have the ability to dictate who can even be present where you are. You have the ability. You have the muscle 
to stop others, potential invaders, enemies, from even being in your presence. Non-white people all over the known universe do not have that ability. Thus, we do not have a community. I think that would be helpful in stopping some forms of confusion, just recognizing there's no black community. We don't have that. Other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have comments, questions, suggestions, proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, retired firefighter. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, everyone. Uh, my report, I just have one report. Uh, it was uh, over the, uh, the action of soliciting in the area where I'm allowed to stay in beautiful Miami Gardens. Uh, we have tons and tons of people soliciting as though it's the 1930s. Uh, I think it's very irrelevant for people to be knocking on your door for anything uh, because uh, companies have your phone numbers, they, the computer is available for anything that you may want or need, uh, and there's absolutely no use of constructive use anyway uh, to be knocking on people's doors, but primarily that takes place over in the area where I stay at. I suspect it's because the area is exclusively non-white people. I don't think that someone will be knocking on the door of a wealthy, powerful white person. Uh, and matter of fact, it didn't have to go there. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen reports of the white female who uh, basically uh, uh, pull, uh, pull a gun on uh, four black males as they were coming to her door, which is not really those children's fault. Uh, I would like to be able to speak to the parents about the folly. Uh, in my case, it took place and I admonished the person that was at my door. I kept my eyes on him as he was following uh, through on knocking on other people's doors and uh, waited for him, to come for him to come back to his vehicle. And in turn, uh, he apparently didn't like what I was talking about because the very things that I mentioned prior to uh, on this program, I expressed it to him very loudly and it, so he could hear it. And in turn, he threatened me. He threatened my life, uh, which is probably going to take a lot more to stop the retired firefighter from uh, doing what he does. But nevertheless, he uh, threatened me. Uh, this person was a, uh, I, I would be pretty sure that uh, one of his languages is is Spanish. I would not identify him as being a white person, though. I wouldn't identify him as being. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. I don't think he would pass a test to what, with white people about being a white person. But I'm pretty sure that one of his languages is Spanish, and that's my report. Uh, did you have a Did you have a question on the uh, on the program? I, I think I heard you mentioning a question 
to everybody to participate uh, excuse me to participate in did you have one i did have a question that has been five minutes uh, I'll give the question, and that way you'll have a little time. You can think about it and then come back and give us your response if you have one. Yeah, yeah. I'll come back later. Thank the, you, sir. For sure. Uh, the question is, uh, the segment that we opened with today was about uh, in Washington State, they're taking or they're going to add X to the driver's license for the gender uh, options. So it'll be male, female, and X. Uh, my question was, the way that that has been uh, presented, does it make logical sense uh, that gender is fluid uh that you might be born a male and then you know transition at some point in life and be a female uh or lots of different ways that that may happen does that seem logical the way that it has been presented uh or do people see the logical connection in terms of why mr fuller is saying that this is another aspect of white supremacy racism uh, just to get people's thoughts on that uh while retired firefighter thinks of his response for that and maybe other people too uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have commentary, star six one, line should be open. Hello. Uh, yes, ma'am. Hi, thank you for having taking my call. I hope everyone's having the best evening possible. Um, the first issue, I believe, about the gender. Um, I agree with the first call. I thought she put up an excellent point about, you know, being attacked or trying to, even just I, I trying to identify a person. Well, who got hurt? Uh, it got hurt. Who? I mean, I don't know what you say. You know, they got if they were hurt. I mean, is that the time for you to be politically correct or get them get them assistance, no matter who it is? Um, I know. I think I believe on some jump. Job applications now. People are asking about um, if you're LGBT or if you want to be this or that. I think is is very confusing. But the only people that don't seem to be confused are the transgender people because they're making a conscious decision to change from one gender to the other. So I don't know. Are they going to be the new males and females? Are they going to be the new examples of males and females? And we have to follow that. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, this Jerry Kelly person, I did see the picture. I read an article that says, I guess she changed her Facebook page to reflect PTSD. Again, trying to be a victim. Oh, I have PTSD or something, and this is why. I don't know. Um, and in this one article I read from, I guess, heavy.com, it seems legitimate because all the other things that were talked about were said in other articles that I read. Um, in this particular article, it said, you know, at the time there was not a mugshot, so a local news outlet, they um, substituted her, pic- what would have been her picture with a picture of a black person. So I hope that black person found that out and can sue and become a millionaire, I guess. I guess that's the best that can happen to them. Um, Jeffrey Epstein, this is is ridiculous. He was a monster for months. Now it's almost like he's a martyr. Oh, the prison system's so horrible. They let him kill himself. This man it was horrible. I mean, I don't think that's a metaphor. I think that was the consensus until he died. Um, but now it's like, oh, it's almost like poor him, which I I understand because of the system we're in, but, you know, 
I think that's a bit extreme even for them. Um, and, you know, he is dead. And they told they tell black people to forget about reparations and things that happened from Jim Crow because the Civil War is way over and those people who participated are dead. So we're not supposed to get anything. So I do feel sorry for these people and if they are able to get something good for them, but they tell us all the time that, oh, these, those people are dead and they don't exist and we're not them and we should be held to those standards. Just like the the um, issue with the artifacts, you know. Well, we didn't take them. Colonialism is over. The What did you say? The the unhappy history or whatever whatever it was. Right. Um, and, oh, and we found a way, Pennsylvania has found a way to curb, um, to institute gun control, a black person shot at police officers. Just like in California a long time ago with the lowly, the lowly citizen governor, um, noticed that there were black people who were able to exercise their rights with weapons and instituted gun control measures there. Short Shake Redemption, they show that movie every month. I don't, maybe they'll show it on more channels. They show that movie, well, I should say, at least every other month, faithfully. So, they'll just continue to show it. I don't know what extra they're going to do. I can show it every day for a month, but that movie is always shown. Okay. Thank you. Love seeing Morgan Freeman in prison. It's uh, <laughs> got to be uh, something uh, to watching it over and over and over. Uh, I think we even talked about the scene where they're in prison watching uh, movies and he gets to do his catcalling uh, for the white woman, quote unquote catcalling. Um, at the co-op here, they have a grocery store where they have lots of amazing organic produce. Uh, and they have a number, much like Trader Joe's, of LGBT employees. I normally, when I'm out and about, the same way that I function here on the program, sir, ma'am, try to be courteous, even though we are total system of white terrorism. Uh, and I, that is the only spot where I consistently feel like I'm going to get in trouble because uh, it's happened more than once. I went through when someone there and said, thank you, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. And they're like, wait a minute. I don't use those pronouns or wrong one uh, to the point where I just stopped saying it there because uh, I feel like I'm going to say the wrong one or I'm not going to remember their non-gendered pronoun. But that is are really big to do out here in Seattle. Uh, and just for comparison's sake, Jerry Kelly, she gets her firearm, has these four black boys at gunpoint on the ground. In Virginia this week, someone left 52 television sets, like the old-fashioned large television sets, uh, out on people's uh, front yards, uh, out on their front step over this past week. Uh, they got some lawn cameras of people going out and doing it, but they didn't catch the people. They don't know who did it. Went out and done all this. I suspect that sort of prank probably was some white people. I could be in error. Uh, but I just point that out in terms of you have black children who are out in broad daylight fundraising with apparently some form of school paraphernalia on for at least some of the boys. 
and they're stopped at gunpoint by a random suspected race soldier. You have what I think is probably some whites who can go out to do a prank, which they said may constitute a crime. It might be illegal dumping at minimum. Uh, They can go out and do this. They're not held at gunpoint, haven't even found the people. Just talking about, in my view, the drastic difference in being able, what you can do. You can go out and actually trespass on 52 people's property with a television. It could have been a bomb. They don't know what it is. And apparently they got away. No big deal. Black children, broad daylight, just kindly trying to sell cards to help get finances for our sports team. Enforcement officials have to come in to save us from a terrorist white woman. Other folks, we missed totally. Proceed. Hello. Happy Earth. Greetings, Irie. Greetings. And uh, greetings to everyone else on the line um, and listening. I think that uh, the gender pronoun uh, issue, the sexual confusion, I think that, well, for me, I don't, I don't want to participate in it. Um, I will ask the person's name, and I will just say the person's name, um, and uh, just let that be it. I did have an instance where a third-grade non-white female uh, walked into a, a classroom with her class, and as soon as she came in, she was kind of boisterous, and I said, oh, no, you can't do that. That's not the, the right way to come in, and she was like, uh, I know, and then she was like, well, my pronouns are then, they, and theirs. And I did use a metaphor. Um, I said, oh, um, you got more than one person in that house? Which basically meant, like, do you have multiple personalities? And she knew what I meant. And she said, no. I said, well, what's your name? Because I, 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 I can't, I won't do that. I'm not going to call you more than one person. And that's what we did. And um, I think that this whole pronoun confusion is a way to allow uh, white people who are known sexual predators in every way. Uh, It's giving them more access to um, people and things sexually. If you can take the semantics of gender away from somebody or add gender to something, then that makes that um, a, a, a candidate for sexual experience for, for white people. They're, they're bored with themselves and they they have a habit or I should say a practice of making um, natural processes, turning them into monstrosities and disastrous uh, affairs, uh, even on a basic level of intercourse and, and sex as identification. And I think ultimately they're probably going to say, well, you know what, we're tired. We're done with that. Let's go back to our, you know, puritanical. I'm sorry, that's a metaphor. Let's go back to our, you know, strict ways, no sex, heavy regulation on on that. Maybe even to the point where they say, you know what, y'all have, y'all are so over sex. Now we're making it where you can't have sex at all without our permission. And I've also seen intimations of that in science fiction. And I know you can't base necessarily, you know, reality. It's 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 a hypothesis. It's basically what I'm getting at. But I do believe they're telling on themselves as a part of their long range or long game plan, um, or strategy, I should say. Um, so I think this is a part of the beginning stage of that process. But in the meantime, they want to have sex with every everybody and everything they can, and this is how it helps them do that. I wanted to um, give info 
something interesting on a documentary I saw called Double Dutch Black Magic. It was uh, it's on YouTube and it was shot in I believe 1985. And it was about five black girls from I think it was Maryland. They won the national competition uh, for Double Dutch, um, and they were awarded a, a trip to London, you know, to exhibit the sport. And uh, on the team, there's a speed jumper um, in which, you know, the jumps are timed by every time the left foot hits the uh, the floor. So she uh, got the most that were ever recorded at the time, and they tried to get her to replicate it for the Guinness Book of World Records, but she, she just couldn't. And, you know, it, it reminded me of John Henryism. Like, come on, keep going. Push yourself to go further than you actually can. So she would um, actually max out at about the same steps each time she tried to beat the record, and I found that interesting. Um, There was a white male, a white British male, um, that forcefully but politely uh, made them learn or add a double curtsy to the end of their jump routine for a Lord Mayor, whatever that is, um, that they were performing for. And it was kind of, it was really pathetic because it was like uh, the coach had already added the curtsy to the performance, but then he made them like do it again after they did it the first time, but more deeply, like they had to bend their knees more deeply. And that was very, very, it was, it was bad. It was trashy. Um, The conversation that the kids had between some other kids that were in Britain was interesting. It was not white kids that they were visiting in a dance center. And they talked about school and what happens if you get in trouble with fights, talking back, or, you know, if if you're disrupted, if you're caught with a weapon. And they asked about uh, crime in the cities and the neighborhoods. And is it true what we hear about, you know, over there in America? And she's like, it's just like where you live, we have issues, but it's it's home. You know, we're used to it. And the kids like, yeah, we understand. And it revealed to me the pitiful state that uh, black kids are living in throughout the world. In in uh, so-called America and elsewhere. Um, let's see. And um, Double Dutch actually, um, uh, somebody mentioned that Double Dutch was going to be added in the 1988 Olympics, uh, possibly. And then I wondered why it hadn't because the athleticism that's required is astonishing. But then I realized all the videos I was looking up on Double Dutch either has black females with some black men participating or uh, so-called Japanese men. And I suspect that they don't want to add that to the Olympics because it would be too dominated by these two groups. Um, So moving out of that last thing, I told my son that the racism that's occurring now is much like the racism reported to be by my grandmother, and she was born in 1932. And right after I told him that, I read a report about uh, a business owner that went on vacation, I can't remember where, with his family. They left the hotel room. Um, he took his family on a shopping spree, and when he returned, there was a note by the lamp, a uh, handwritten note on a napkin that said, you're a nigger, um, awaiting for him. And that he said, this is racism I remember seeing in the 1960s. So that let me know I wasn't off at all with what I told my son. And I talked to him about racism often. And that just brings me, um, makes me, you know, think about the woman and what she did with the four black uh, football players and how she, she feels like she can do that. It's basically 
it, it may even be worse than 1940s, 50s, and 60s racism. It may just be uh, 1800s, 1800s uh, style action that we're seeing. But because we have technology and clothing and terms have changed, you know, we're not necessarily equating. But they, they've gone back. They've gone back in their, in their execution, the unrefined white people, I should say, the unsophisticated powerless class. They're going back to the old plantation style uh, or whatever that is, reconstruction style racism that we've seen that Ida B. Wells reported on, so forth and so on. Thank you. I'll mute my line, and I hope that was constructive information. Much obliged, Irie. Context of white supremacy, number again, 605 Three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Other folks uh, dialed in. If we have missed you totally and you have thoughts, questions, suggestions to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, Imhan DC. Yes, sir. Greetings. Greetings to everyone. I'm trying to figure what exactly I I I should say in what order and everything. But I would say again, we have to end white supremacy as soon as possible. You have to say it out loud. You have to say, I will end white supremacy as soon as possible. I also think that perhaps people don't know that they can end white supremacy at all. So maybe that's why people won't say it. And so you should verbally ask yourself, how can I end white supremacy? How can I do it? How can I do it in my lifetime? How can I end white supremacy in my lifetime? How can I do it as soon as possible? You should also write it. You should, you should write. I will end white supremacy as soon as possible. You should write the question, how do I end white supremacy as soon as possible? Uh, the other thing is, again, with sharing the content of this particular show and also other constructive content that deals with ending white supremacy, we have to do that. We have to do it like we're serious, you know, because I'm serious. I'm, I'm, I'm really sad about everything that's going on. I am, I am really sad. Um, I don't know why people don't constantly cry. I don't know why people smile and why people are so happy. But share the show and share it with as many people as possible. Just do it. Share it with as many people as possible. Share the content of whatever show or books or information that you know or think that is going to end white supremacy. Share it with everybody that you can do, that you can share it with. Um, and you should do it now. Uh, thank you. Much obliged, Imhan DC. End white supremacy. 
racism as soon as possible. And we absolutely have the ability uh, to get this problem solved, Uh, saying it out loud, writing it, uh, believing it. I know Dr. Welsing talked about that, uh, Mr. Edward Williams as well. Uh, And always, I will definitely echo, uh, share the content with other victims of white supremacy. You think it might benefit their understanding of what white supremacy racism is and how it works. Uh, Let's see, other folks, if we have missed you totally and you have a question, uh, let's see, line should be open. Proceed. I heard both of you. Uh, We'll get our female caller first. Oops, messed up. Thank you for that. This caller from um, 712. It was a lot of clips that had a lot of good um, information, but the one that I wanted to speak on was the about the farmers and um, with the farmers. Um, the black farmers that they decided to just basically um, put them out of business uh, due to lack of funding. In that report, um, I heard the 40 acres and a mule, um, and I know everybody, I mean, people have talked about that. And I just want to say with the 40 acres and a mule, I, I, I think that was one of white people's lies. I don't think that it ever was going to happen. Um, I think they just put that in there as like some type of joke or something. I think, I think that was a lie. And that's, yeah. And I also heard, um, a lady they were talking to and that one saying about if we don't know about the history and I hear a lot of people saying that it's an old, I guess it's like a saying that goes around. If you don't know about history, uh, you're doomed to repeat it, or you're going to repeat it, and that with that one even again. Sorry about okay. that. It was uh, someone. I no, think, a, right oh, that's okay. With the history, and you're going to repeat it if you don't know the history. I I kind of feel. I mean, just thinking about that, I don't think that's a good um, thing to say, especially when it comes to, like, white supremacy and, and, and black people suffering from white supremacy because we didn't, as far as that being history, I don't know how it's history because we're still going through the exact same thing. Um, but that's that's what I really wanted to comment on. And also the fundraisers, um, with the fundraisers, I never was... I never let the children go out to do that because I didn't understand why the schools um, didn't have enough money for whatever they were raising money for, whether it was new band equipment or they were trying to get enough money to take a trip at the end of summer. Um, You know, people are getting a lot of taxes taken out of their, their, their checks and just looking at my check that I get and, and what I, they take for me in taxes I mean, all the people in my city and all those taxes, and then you still have to have the children doing fundraisers for anything. Um, I don't see how they they need to do that. 
um, very dangerous, um, and that is that's the best point that you shouldn't let, you know, your child, your children, um, black children, uh, most definitely non-white children, period, go out and do fundraisers because of, you know, of the terrorism and and just the the prison system that we're in. But I I didn't want my children to do it just off the the strength of saying, hey, you know, why don't they, why don't you have um, enough money? Why would children need to go out and fundraise for anything for the whole school year? I mean, all of that stuff should be, should be, you know, it should be there available for the children. And that's all I wanted to say. Thanks for listening. Excellent point about the financial uh, component. Uh, that the children have to be uh, turned out to beg <laughs> to raise uh, resources uh, in a system of white supremacy. Uh, I guess I'd be remiss if I missed this opportunity to again uh, say this is uh, another reason that black parents should divest their children from uh, those athletics. They were out fundraising for the uh, high school sports team. Uh, with the brain damage from football and the racist molesting coaches, Jerry Sandusky, lots of reasons to let all that go. Uh, I think it was the caller in Florida who uh, yielded for our female caller. Um, if that was you, proceed. Uh, if not the male caller who yielded, uh, you can feel free to proceed. Yeah, thank you very much, Gus. Uh, just a couple of quick points. Um, the first was on the Ronald Reagan segment. Uh, I noticed that it was a few people making commentary during the segment, and they definitely, uh, it looks like they was practicing a white codification because they worked extremely hard and not labeling, calling him a racist white supremacist and they were using terms like pejorative and negative speaking about black people in a pejorative negative way uh and it was a male a white man it sounded like that said he was i guess shocked i don't know if he was the author of his uh biography i believe or something some kind of a book he said i guess he, he used the word either shocked or surprised and saying that their father taught them not to discriminate, okay? And because something about their uncle, their uncle being Irish, okay, trying to, I guess, conflate in some way, um, very, very slick act of racism. And I think that might be an example of, I think you, you mentioned uh, a term being made up for something that they do Many years later, when they reveal something, I think when you were discussing uh, the Sandra Bland case, uh, I can't remember what context it was. Do you remember that, Gus? Some information that they came out with uh, a while later, how they'll do that, they'll practice racism in that way? With Yes, sir. I think with uh, Sandra Bland, it was... This was years after she had passed away and they, you know, were not going to indict the officer. Uh, and I think this was recent. It might have even been the earlier part of this year, but they came out with some sort of new information that the officer lied 
Uh, and they didn't change. They didn't go back and change. They didn't prosecute anybody, but just to come up with new information way later uh, at a specific time for whatever reason that they have that will also be unjust. But yes, I have seen that as a pattern. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you on that. Uh, and the next segment, I, I think it was about the two different churches. I think they were Christian, Christian uh, churches or Baptist churches and how it looks like they were interviewing a white woman and she was uh very dedicated. I guess I'll use that term. And it seemed like she didn't want to become too revealing with her racism because she was using cold words like American and we don't want any Muslims here. But it, it seemed like she tried to uh, stop, I guess, with revealing more of a racism, I guess. If anyone, if anyone noticed that in her responses, um, I don't think she was confusing herself. She just didn't want to practice more racism than she already had. Um, saying almost like go back to where you come from, but just said, oh, well, you know, she's not American. But what are you talking about? She, she is here. Like, I guess saying that somebody was born American. And she was like, yeah, no, no, you're not American. And didn't even give a definition. Like, is that, does that mean uh, white? And even that might not be codified because that could be helping her out with the uh, answer. Um, but the it was, a, it was another one about the mass shooting segment. I would like to hear a definition for the term domestic terrorism. I think they use that term. Uh, and about the transgender or the uh, gender uh, question, I've definitely run into that or I've encountered that on the job where, and this is mostly white people. I think it does connect with white supremacy. I've con uh, I've encountered this a lot on the job where mainly people are coming in to get a judgment on a name change. So I'll look at, I'll type up the name on a case because I ask them, okay, like, can I get your last name and first name? Um, and they'll say the, they'll be like, oh, well, which one, which one, which one? Like I say, well, we'll just go with the new name and it'll be Steven. Okay. And the old name used to be Tasha. And it'll say this on the, uh, on the search results, both the old and the new name. And it's like, man, how do I respond? You know, when it comes to these pronouns and I've been saying words like, oh, correct. If they ask me something and I say correct. And that's been working for me so far, but I've asked white people, what words do we use if we don't use yes, sir, yes, ma'am? I haven't really gotten a response on that. And uh, just to add one last thing, I heard a white woman, she said, I love guessing the pronouns. I just love guessing to see if I can get the correct pronouns. She sounded very excited about that. Um, when talking to uh, people who are changing their gender and going from Michael to uh, Wendy. And this is how it literally is. So that's all I have for now. Thanks for allowing me to share. Much obliged. I'm surprised they don't have that codified uh, at the courthouse. Like the pronouns, these are the ones to use. These are the ones to not use. Like yeah, I would expect they'd have everybody. It's almost 2020. Like, you know, the courthouse, we are moving into the new age in a progressive manner in South Florida. Uh, much obliged. Uh, I thought 
the white woman, I think that was Virginia too, uh, at the church where it sounded like she wanted to be more explicitly racist. And it seemed like there was a filter at, at a few points where she stopped. It's like, oh, this is on a, on the radio. Maybe I, maybe I ought to watch. And she started back up and the filter kicked in again. Cause I think she ended it. She just said, I don't think we should have Muslims here. That was the way she was like, what I can't, I can't quite say what I want to say as as explicitly as I'd like. So I, we just shouldn't have any Muslims. I'll just leave it at that. And then they moved on. But yes, it seemed like she wanted to, like, I will tell it exactly. Like, we do not want the Negroes here. And if you got anybody else, she seemed like she wanted to be real. Uh, that would be another example. Just like Jerry Kelly, she didn't sound afraid. She didn't sound fearful. She sounded very aggressive and hostile, like she probably had a firearm uh, waiting to shoot somebody as well. Uh, if somebody came around selling candy bars or anything else. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks that we missed uh, totally. Uh, if you have questions, comments, suggestions, line should be open. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, greetings, callers, uh, listeners, and uh, Gus. Thank you again for the platform. Um one of the first things I wanted to go over was uh, the Reagan commentary. Uh, it's definitely interesting to see the dynamic where he tends to kind of play both sides in actually dealing with uh, racism and how he, he skill, he's skillful about it in regards to saying one thing to, to the audience, placating using uh, these words of so-called inclusion, but then on the other side, he's actually the, the bills and everything that he's passing legislation is just harming us. And I, and I think that's um, indicative of what they've learned as they've grown to understand uh, more and more and evolve and refine the system. And he, that's a fine example of refinement on his side. Um, the, the woman in, in Arkansas, definitely, Ms. Kelly, definitely was a uh, <laughs> practicing racism, white supremacy, and I, I believe that she will continue to get special treatment and nothing will come of her terrorism. And I just think it's very important to point out white woman again. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, see, I hear this so many times. My, my attentive partner, she deals with it in the office and the most difficult people to deal with on her side are white women. And it's just indicative to keep hearing this over and over playing over again. Um, as also uh, a caller earlier mentioned, uh, and Dr. J Tommy Curry even has that written in some of his texts. Um, the non-gender question you proposed, I think that's interesting as well. I think I'm, I'm still a bit confused because I don't know what to call somebody who is a man that turned into a so-called woman because under, from my understanding of what gender works is that if, for a woman to be kind of classified as a woman, she has to be able to reproduce as well. From my knowledge, I don't think that those men that change genders are even able to reproduce. Um, and the same thing vice versa with uh, a, a female turning into a man. I, and, and that leaves me a little bit confused. I don't know if anybody else has any clarification on that. It would be greatly appreciated. Um, Jeffrey Epstein, very interesting scenario. I think 
that is something that a case that we should all monitor and keep our eyes on because this is reaching higher echelons of the financial industry and power uh, and white supremacy, the higher ups. So I, I don't think anything is going to come of it. I think definitely we'll see something maybe five to 10 years down the line when people are dead and things have moved on. But I don't, I don't see any justice coming in this day and age, especially in the system that we live in. Um, returning artifacts. I wasn't, I missed a little bit of that um, clip and I was curious, were they also speaking about giving any kind of um, financial um, uh, restitution in some sort? Because obviously people are coming into these museums to also see these African artifacts. So that being said, wouldn't it make sense for them to also not only give back the artifacts, but give a substantial amount of financial uh, restitution to these places that they've taken the artifacts from. Um, retired firefighter, I got a, I got an interesting, I, I, sorry you had to deal with that scenario, by the way, but I have an interesting thing. I, I wondered what your code is on this, because I'm actually trying to figure this out. And anybody else who has a code for this, I, I'm curious as well. But we tend to call uh, Spanish or Latino, uh, Afro-Latino, and all these, and, and Hispanic, these people that, quote unquote, I don't know what they classify themselves as. We, I call them non-white, but um, I'm frequently confused when I talk to them because I don't know, I don't think they know themselves if they're calling themselves Spanish, Hispanic, Latino, Afro-Latino, and are there any definitions for any of these so-called titles, I'm, I'm, I'm very, and, and I know other people that classify themselves as that, and the answers they give me are completely illogical. They don't make any sense. So I'm, I'm curious to what your, your code is on that firefighter, as well as anybody else that may uh, be listening. Um, also, and one last thing, um, here in New York City, we have, uh, in Brooklyn, we have a district called Brownsville in Brooklyn. And, um, while the country is having a conversation about 5G and these faster internet speeds, in Brownsville, they barely have enough internet connectivity to, to, to really even to get on and do fast browsing, like normal browsing for anybody in a metropolitan area would or should be capable of doing. And obviously in this area, it's a highly dense populated area of non-white people. Um, it is an area that gentrification has not hit yet and probably won't hit for maybe a couple more. But technology-wise, that area has been suffering because people are not able to get online. As you know, applications for even jobs and signing up for plantations is almost everything exclusively online. So um, it does create another roadblock here in, um, quote, unquote, New York City. Uh, again, thank you for your time and energy, and uh, I'll mute my line. Peace. Can I be heard? Yes, sir, Thomas in New York. Roadblock is a metaphor. Uh, proceed, Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Um, good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Um, yeah, Latino, I, I use, uh, I, I call them Vito. I, I just, you know, Mexicans, I call them Mexicans. But people from the islands who speak English, I, you know, I, that's my term because I can't tell them apart. 
And uh, I like to call people by the country they come from. You know, if, they, if I know they're Dominican, I'll call them a Dominican, you know, but or Puerto Rican, but um, male, female, or ex, gosh, man. Uh, when we had that option, you know, black, white, or we could just choose, you know, uh, just uh, white people, boy. Uh, I think that they're going to be ending the gender construct. And I personally feel like they're going to be um, ending the racial construct soon, too. Maybe not in our lifetime. Because um, you did a report years ago where they said um, California uh, whites realized that they're not going to be the majority anymore, so they made it illegal to use the word majority. No one's using the word. Okay, they're not going to be the minority. So uh, once the numbers start to switch, um, you know, and the computers are in place that's already been programmed with the racial um, stereotypes in them, and white people say, hey, we don't need that gender, I mean, that racial construct anymore. What was interesting in that report, though, well, um, I'll get into that, so it's time for real. Um, I understand that um, white people stole the, a lot of the African um, people art and artifacts, and um, they stole people's stuff from everywhere on the planet that they go. Um, but just keep in mind that if... Um, the stuff that people do today that's called art, you know, it's not just, you know, um, chiseling um, a rock or something. Uh, they're still in it while the people are still alive, right in front of everyone's face. So, you know, they sign contracts and things where they're producing art, but they never own it. Um, they, You know, white people will always steal art because they can't produce any of their own, really. Uh, Epstein, um, if you look it up, he was choked by a cop by the name of Nicholas Artaglione. This was a coke-dealing cop um, in jail for a quadruple homicide with killed um, four people that I would classify as Mexican. And um, he actually dug graves for them and buried them. This cop looked like Luferigno as far as his body when Luferigno played the Incredible Hulk back in the day. Um, but on the 22nd, Nicholas Tartaglione was caught with a cell phone in his possession. You can find the prison records on this. And um, having him move to the area of the uh, prison where Epstein was staying um, for that violation. And then um, on the 25th, he, he's in a cell with Epstein choking him. That was the first time. They called it a suicide attempt, but you can find several reports that this cop was being questioned for choking Epstein. And um, when you look at him, you can see, you know, this guy's very capable of killing someone with his bare hands. Um, so this prison, um, the Metropolitan Correctional Facility, which is a federal prison, federal jail, only has 774 prisoners in it. They're all awaiting trial for federal crimes. This is the most high-profile um, place, most high-profile crimes uh, in New York are held by the Southern District. This is where... They put El Chapo, Don Gotti, Frank Lucas, all of Al-Qaeda that they removed from Guantanamo, all the terrorists, the shoe bomber, the Boston bomber, Bernie Madoff, all the Wall Street crimes, all the mafia, they all go here. So I just don't buy the story. Um, um, Mr. Jay-Z, um, 
I just say look at the Brooklyn Nets. Um, he was used by white to remove blacks from Brooklyn Heights, Fort Greene, downtown Brooklyn. Based off of promises he personally made, um, and of course whites could have lied to him and he made the promises and they didn't follow through, but the low-income housing, schooling, hospital, employment, none of it came to that area. However, blacks were moved out, um, and they had um, fought for years not to be moved out, and they were successful, and they allowed um, you know, his promises to let them sign over some things that removed them. Um, they, they, they were supposed to provide 15,000 jobs, and they so far only provided 3,500. It's a failure. Um, they're the lowest attendance in the NBA, 14,000 in a 20,000 seat arena. Uh, but only 500 of those jobs are full time, and those are management jobs. 71% of those are from white people. So it didn't benefit the people from the community at all. So when I look at where he's uh, allowed himself to um, affiliate with white supremacists and um, be used in that capacity, um, I just look at this NFL deal very skeptically, and I'm just going to keep my eyes on it because um, I don't think he's doing it in our best interest. I don't look at it like he made it, we all made it. You know, I just don't agree with it. This is to me, this isn't making. <laughs> you know, and and if you are if you're worth a billion dollars, I believe the average NFL team is worth like three billion. You know, and they say, oh, he might be a significant owner. I mean. You don't got enough money to be a significant owner unless you're gonna put it all up. So it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, but I just um, I just don't like this move. Um, Lyndon Johnson, racist legacy to me was giving white women civil rights. Um, Ronald Reagan, he was the president when I started school. His picture was all over the school. Um, yeah, triple down economics. Um, Ronald Reagan. Um. Bush, which is, you know, Clinton, the crime bill, the welfare um, cut, everything he did, repealed Glass-Steagall, which got everyone to lose their home by the time 2008 hit. Um, Bush, Katrina, um, to me, they all racist. I can't name one. You know, I'm, I, I, I think I might have missed Jimmy Carter in there. Um, I can't name one. Um, however, um, we... We're trained to only see Trump as the racist president. So, you know, it's just um, now he makes private calls on the phone about Africa um, to Nixon. And uh, don't forget, um, Ronald Reagan was the one who shut down the Black Panthers in California. He was the governor of California. Uh, Ronald Reagan um, called and made the comment about them not having shoes on. Um, and we have Trump who outright just said it's a shithole. He didn't bite his tongue. He didn't take it back. He, uh, under the pressure, you know, he said it is what it is. You know, I respect that type of white person. You know what I'm saying? Other than calling people and we find out after you're dead what you said, you know, just say it outright. And I'll meet my line for now. Thank you, guys. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Uh, I think the NFL may have been listening to your critique. You have come on this very platform more than once, I believe, and said the NFL has a problem 
with their marketing. They're stuck using Hank Williams Jr. and this old fogey white banjo country music trying to promote their product and it's not working and they're losing fans. The NBA skyrocketed. They're using hip-hop music. They got Kanye West and, you know, Drake out there with Toronto, had him out front row for the whole finals and everything. They're using hip-hop to market and get those young people in here and look at them. Got everybody all over the world rooting for NBA basketball. In the NFL, they won't do it. They got these staunchy white owners. And so they said, hey, Thomas in New York is right. Let's get Jay-Z. We'll, we'll get Jigger to help us out. And and I even saw some people, they were saying the same thing you did this week, that, hey, we've had all this problem that no good Colin Kaepernick gave us all that bad publicity. We'll partner with Anigra and we'll get some hip-hop listeners, get some of the black people off of us. We're working with Jay-Z and doing all this. Great move. Outstanding. With Dr. Welsing, A-pluses. That's what Dr. Welsing I would think with that one. Uh, and Mr. Jay-Z, maybe he knows, maybe he doesn't know victim of racism very easy to pick out i'm sure they could have picked out kanye west could have went down the line asap rocky once he got back they could have picked you know a lot of victims they could have picked for that project uh other but anybody we missed totally anybody we missed completely have a hand up grant if you did have commentary and uh we haven't heard from you at all uh, you should press star six one. Do not wait till the last uh, minute. Uh, go ahead and get your hand up now if you have questions, comments, suggestions uh, you would like to offer. Uh, retired firefighter, uh, the question was posed about uh, your, I guess, terms in referring to so-called Latinos, Hispanics, individuals who speak Spanish. Did you want to respond to the question? Uh, I... Uh... I I don't associate I don't make my associations with a with a place. Uh, basically, because uh, I prior I, uh, earlier I I uh, gave an example of what I do. Uh, if it's if it's a person that that I think would not pass the test of a white person of being a white person, I would say that they're a non-white person and they're primary language or one of their languages is Spanish. Uh, I don't use the word uh, Hispanic. I don't use the word Hispanic uh, primarily because it doesn't make any sense to me. It's probably a word that's designed to confuse people. I don't use the word Latino uh, because uh, for the most part, most of that particular word is actually a language, Latin. Uh, so, and I don't fully understand on what it means. So I, I have a tendency of not using terms that I don't have a understanding of its meaning. So I would just state, uh, uh, if it's a white person, I would say, uh, uh, and, and it needs to be distinguished a little bit more. I would say a white person in one of their languages is Spanish. <laughs> you know, it's for that concern because you can, you can be a person that, that is that that speaks Spanish, but have never been to uh, Cuba or uh, or Venezuela or you know or any yeah any place where the primary language is Spanish, you know. So I just stay in the in the uh, 
in the area where we're exclusively talking about racial classifications, not necessarily uh, places on the planet geography. That make any sense? Uh, to me, it did. Yes, sir. There we go. Okay. <laughs> I, I I have to I I have to uh, kind of like run it through to some other people because uh, I, you know that that's just my thoughts because I'm striving to try to be as accurate as possible. That's the that's the reason why I do it to try to be as accurate as possible uh, with the subject matter. Uh, I I forgot the question again that that you asked earlier. I forgot it again. So it'd the be, male, female, male, female, X uh, on the driver's license. Uh, if that the switching, uh, not using gendered pronouns, changing all of that, if that makes logical sense the way it's been presented. Uh, does that you remember the question now? Uh, you said X. It was the first news segment that we played uh, in Washington that- State. I'm assuming X is, is neither male or female. Correct. Uh, it's male, female, and then X for neither. Uh, and them talking about doing away with having that, uh, what they call a gender binary way of thinking, uh, male, female, and, and that gender is more fluid, that you can be born uh, a female. And then, you know, by the time you're your age, well, you know, I'm a female. Uh, and that it's it's not as constant as we have been led to believe. Does it make does it seem logical uh, and in accordance with evidence the way that it's being presented uh, and or does it make sense what Mr. Fuller is saying about this being a part of the confusion? I would I would say definitely it's it's a part of the confusion. It's definitely the part of the confusion. Uh, white people uh, are very conscious of what there are what they are doing, what they're saying and what they're doing. Uh, and they would use all of these methods. Now, this, you know, uh, uh, he, like Mr. Fuller says, there's two weapons that they use, deception and direct violence. The most, more proficient weapon is deceit. And that's basically what we're talking about right now. We're talking about some of the most diabolical, deceptive, individuals that ever walked the face of the earth, quote unquote. Uh, And uh, basically uh, in order to get clarity, if, if I was, let's say in conversation with someone who is uh, pro uh, to that type of, I would directly ask them, well, what would you like to be identified by? You know, directly, if there's, if, you know, uh, I, you know, because I would have to have some sort of clarity to be able to identify them. So I would ask them directly if they're bold enough to state that they are not a part of uh, male, female gender, then I'm bold enough to ask them directly. But what would you like to be identified by? As simple as that. And then move on with the. If I have to converse with that person for whatever reason. Uh, then move on uh, with it. Uh, uh, As of right now, I I can't recall of any instance of being in contact with a person uh, that uh, had that particular uh, issue. Uh, 
yet, but that's what I would do if I, if or when I come in contact with it. That's what I would do. I would ask them directly, what would you like to be identified by? Sir, ma'am, <laughs> that sort of thing. That's it. Thank you. Much obliged. Can I, be heard? I, I definitely support that. Sorry, sorry. Oh, no, no worries. I got you. Uh, I definitely support that uh, retired firefighter calling people what they uh, want to be called. I think that's always a policy that will generally help you avoid problems with other people. Uh, just really quick before we nab Thomas in New York uh, with the gender aspect, they are having some sort of. Uh, I'm going to botch the title, so I know it's it's exclusively for females. It's supposed to be some sort of healing yoga type circle uh, exclusively for females here in Seattle. And my friend, who is a female, she was looking at it, but she said, at black female, she said, I don't want to go because there might be individuals there who identify it because I think the wording that they used was it was for individuals who self-identify as female. That's the way it's where That's Seattle language. Woof, the refinement. That's the way it was worded. It was for individuals who self-identify as female. My friend, who is a black female, said, I don't want to go because I think that will be, uh, there will at least be one person there uh, who will be someone who was born as Fred and now they want to be called Jean uh, or at least just for today maybe even. They want to be Angela and they will be allowed to be there because they can identify as female. She said, I think that will be present and I do not want to be a part of anything like that. I think that is totally ridiculous and I'm not on board. That did happen just this week. Uh, uh, Thomas in New York, thank you for your patience, sir. Did you have a comment you wanted to share? No problem, Gus. Uh, absolutely. Well, I think that the bill um, that Trump passed this week uh, to address his um, immigration um, invasion is, you know, right along with what white supremacists are supposed to do. You know, if Dr. Wells' theory is true, if they're genetic annihilation, uh, then, you know, I expect uh, someone to be doing something about it. So um, I'm glad that, you know, got, you know, her theory still stands true. Um, but the, the, he passed the bill saying that they can't collect if they collect any type of public assistance while they're here illegally, then they can't apply for citizenship later. Um, you you or, or abandoned your rights to be a citizen because you take your money illegally. Um, and a lot of them come here and have children, and then the children are able to get public assistance, and the mothers have to go, or the fathers have to go down and apply for those benefits. So those people would be um, unable to ever become citizens. Um, I had two things that happened this week. Well, one thing, and I wanted to talk about the clip, um, the Philadelphia cop shooting. Um, if you go to, this was last month, you could Google anything that says um, J.P. Morgan um, cocaine shipment, Philadelphia. And you'll, you'll pull up a bunch of articles where ship of co shipment of cocaine uh, was seen in the uh, Philadelphia harbor. Uh, with 20 tons of cocaine. So one ton is 2,000 pounds, so you're looking at 40,000 pounds of pure cocaine, which would be cut. I mean, so, you, you know, you're looking at a, a, a supply that would have supported that city for a long time. 
So usually when that type of thing happens, you have something called a drought, and it's hard to get. So it's very surprising when I saw these cops all involved in the drug bust and everything just doesn't add up. Um, to me, this was some dirty cops. You know, that's what I got from the whole thing. And this guy, you know, and them had some type of deal and something went wrong. I don't really buy the story they're coming out with. Because um, that, the biggest drug deal is all the police. I mean, at least in New York. I mean, in New Jersey, too. Um, but the clip, they were talking about surveillance. Uh, it's a book by um, an author. Her name is uh, Professor Shoshana Zubal. And the book is called Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. Um, and, you know, when I saw the title, I said, hmm, maybe this has something to do with racism. This don't got nothing to do with racism. Um, but she explains um, that we're on the cusp of a total transformation in capitalism. And um, the transition from mercantilism or commercial capitalism to industrialization or market capitalism until three things uh, to take. One was to take human activity that happens outside of the market and bring it into the market. So hence you have jobs and labor, you know, no more slavery, you know, it's, it's, now you have unions and things like that all brought into the market. The second was to take nature and natural things and bring them into the market. So land, trees, and lakefronts, and desert dwellings, and shore views, and log cabins, and all this stuff is brought into the market under the guise of real estate. And then the three, number three, and the most important thing was you had to have uh, an exchange um, for all of this. So here you get um, currency, um, capital, money, um, so you bring all of this into the market. Um, and of course, money gets brought into the market from banking and uh, 401ks and all other types of mutual things you might do. Um, surveillance capitalism, which is replacing the capitalism as we know it, is to take the human experience, your personal preferences, your private thoughts, your likes, your thumbs up, your thumbs down, and bring all of that into the market. And they're going to call it behavioral data. And this is what all of these companies, you know, I work at the exchange, all of the top selling stocks, you look at, they don't sell nothing but your data. That's all they sell. I mean, Uber knows everywhere you're going, so does Lyft. I mean, what do you think they're selling? They don't, they, they're worth more than Ford. How are you worth more than Ford? And you don't even sell cars if you sell that data. Um, so um, using um, the behavioral data with calculations and computations and algorithms, they're able to do some predictions on what we want to purchase, where we want to go. And that's really what the whole new market is going into place. So surveillance is going to go hand in hand with everything that's going to be happening. So expect that, you know, um, and, and try to find ways as, you know, black people, of course, to, you know, um, it's always, we always stick out, you know, but it's ways to protect us from having our data extracted and things like that, which, you know, I won't really say on here, but it's ways to protect certain aspects of that. And I'll mute my line. Thank you, guys. Mr. Fuller does recommend uh, no secrets, system of racism, white supremacy, take all uh, precautions, but that is something to keep uh, forward. Uh, whites, they invest a lot of time and energy 
keeping track of non-white people worldwide. Wow. And doing drugs, obviously. Uh, other folks, uh, any other questions, comments, suggestions they want to make sure they share? Uh, last few minutes uh, before we get ready to wrap up. We have about five or so minutes. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Um, to the question about um, Latin or Hispanic people, what I've um, witnessed um, them do, Hispanic or non-white people who are um, either Native or have origins to um, a country outside of uh, the United States will refer to themselves most of the time through their nationality. So Mexican, Dominican, you know, Cuban, etc. Um, there's further um, identification for the people who are non-white and considered black in these nationalities. So they'll add the prefix Afro, whatever it is, like Afro-Peruvian, um, so forth. Um, people who are white or would be classified as, as white most of the time, um, meaning they have ethnic or biological or genealogical uh, origins from Europe, will, will say that they're Hispanic meaning Spanish-speaking, and maybe even from a country dominated by Spain, but they will ethnically identify as white. And I witnessed that on a Vice video um, that you can look up a debate between um, Latinx people. Some of the people obviously were non-white. One lady self-identified as Afro. I can't remember. It was something Afro-Latino. And uh, a woman who looked to be maybe even non-white, but maybe, you know, had a European mixture, she self-identified as white. And so did uh, another so-called Latinx or Hispanic um, man. He said he was white. So when it's, you know, they understand what what they may not understand racism, white supremacy uh, in regard to you know, how we're learning it, but they understand enough to know, okay, if I can be white in the system or, you know, be considered white and be able to, as they say, pass, you know, I will do so because it's going to make things easier for me. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's, yeah, that's it. Thank you. I think most folks on the planet at least have that much intelligence. If I'm able to be accepted as white, that would be the much better option in this here system. I think most people have at least that level of understanding, generally speaking. Uh, other folks, comments, questions they wanted to make sure they get in? Hello? Yes, ma'am. Hi, um, I was still listening, and I do want to quickly agree with that about the Hispanic issue. I was watching um, the PBS News Hour, and on Friday they had these two people, Shields and Brooks, some white people. And they always do their little commentary, blah, blah, blah. And they talk about politics and Trump and the demographics. And they just very – I was finally glad because white people, you know, they don't like to say things like that. But, you know, when they come into this country, they identify – they usually identify as white. And, then, you know, he kept on talking about the issue. I was like, see, I knew it. I knew it. We talk about this all the time. Go us. <laughs> 
<laughs> right on, right on. I appreciate when you get uh, signals from the universe, signals from the creator that uh, seem to corroborate uh, that you have been following logic and, you know, processing things in a correct manner. I appreciate when you get that. I cool. tried to find it. I think it was only just a couple of weeks ago. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off when they said it. So it was very recent that it was said. Right on, right on. Uh, other folks, uh, suggestions, comments, they want to make sure they get in. Uh, just a quick suggestion. Yes, sir. Um, these are, reading is definitely more important than watching television, but I, I believe these two documentaries are constructive. They're both on Netflix. One of them is in regards to what, um, both of them are actually in regards to uh, things that Thomas mentioned. One of them was data mining. And uh, the documentary is called The Great Hack, where uh, a white male was trying to find out if he legally has access to the data that is mined from Amazon and all these other Google and all these other big corporations. Um, Of course, he was denied and he's still fighting the case, but it is worth the watch to see the dynamics of of what he goes through. And the last thing is just uh, a documentary on... um, police in New York City called 75th Precinct um, pretty much ties into what Thomas is saying about drug, the police being the biggest drug dealers in the city (laughs) as a whole. All right. um, I'll mute my line. 75th Precinct. Much obliged. Uh, Racist man, racist woman, collectively greatest drug traffickers in the known universe. No contest. Uh, any other folks have questions, comments they want to make sure they get in before we uh, call it a broadcast? Uh, yes, one more thing, Josh. Uh, well, 75th Precinct is good. That's um, about East New York in the 70s. Uh, terrible. Look, just look at it. I hate to use the metaphor, but like a bomb went off in the middle of the city and they did nothing about it. Uh, just terrible. It's very good. Documentary. I didn't see the other one. Uh, but the people who speak Spanish, very confusing. I had this conversation with the firefighter because now our people, I think New York and uh, Miami, um, definitely you see a diverse group of people from um, other places where they speak Spanish. Some of them are white. Um, they just have, they just don't speak English, you know, but they're definitely white people. Right? Not only passport, they white people, you know, and then you have some that are um, black, some that's in the middle that, you know, kind of, but what I see that's very dangerous, and I see black people do this all the time, the ones that are definitely white, um, being that they're not, um, they don't speak English, they, they pretty much treat them like they're a non-white and um, give a lot of information and things to them. And I always say, man, this person is a white person. They're going to share this information with other white people. You know, you have to be very careful because in their country they have a system just like we have is just not as, um, you know, they don't have the one drop rule, um, but they have a, you know, a, a racial um, caste system. Um, and, you know, the white people are the white people there, you know, so when they come here, that's just how they are. I mean, I, I don't see them being treated any different than when I see a white European that comes here with a Swiss accent or a French accent. You know, they have access to the white power. And um, I see the same thing for me, white people. However, seeing that they might say they come from this poor little country, 
where most of the people that you know from that country you identify as black, you pretty much, I see black people a lot of times being very um, transparent with these people, not when they're, not when they're decent. I think that's very dangerous. Mm. Confusion is lethal, system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, any, I guess if you can get it in 30 seconds. Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, there is a there is a book. I can't think of the name of it, but I can give you the author. His name is Dr. Carlos Moore. Uh, that can help everyone on this subject matter that we're talking about. Uh, Dr. Carlos Moore uh, was with Malcolm X when he went to France and was uh, not allowed to, uh, I believe, leave the airport. Uh, because, well, Malcolm needed to uh, had him as a uh, interpreter. Uh, and uh, he wrote a book on, on, on some of this matter that we're talking about right now. Uh, and uh, just wants everybody to, if you look up his name on, on, on in Google, if you look up his name on Google, you probably would see that book. I just can't think of the title of it, but his name is Carlos Moore, Dr. Carlos Moore. Carlos Moore, check it out on Google. Carlos Moore, uh, reading is more important than watching television easily. Uh, we will be here on Monday. Professor Jason Miller should be on the broadcast. Uh, we'll give uh, information, or rather we'll be discussing <clears throat> The article that he wrote was published a few weeks back uh, about Dorothy Cotton, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., mentioned on the broadcast this evening. Uh, we'll be talking to him Monday. White man, suspected racist, always a hoot uh, to have white people on the broadcast. Be prepared with your questions. Again, the yoga retreat, December 28th to January 1st. Drop an email if you have questions suggestions need any additional information until justice at gmail.com information is on the blog i posted it on uh, all the social media sites today as well i uh, hope the broadcast was worthy of your time and energy thanks to all the folks who participated live called in and or listening to the uh, archives sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy they are pulling rifles on school children you definitely want to be sober under these conditions to make sure <clears throat> you are alert and accurately aware of your surroundings and potential dangers armed white women in addition to being sober let's make sure we are buckled up every time we are in a vehicle passenger or driver let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that would include not being on the cell phone if we are behind the wheel. Uh, again, just try to take <clears throat> all precautions that we can uh, to try to keep ourselves as safe as possible uh, under terrorist conditions. With that, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time 
we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Write it down if you need to. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.